Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 140 of X-Lapse, where we're back to uh, one of our old reliables here in Marauders. And boy, it feels like it's been a minute or two since we read uh, just a straightforward issue of Marauders. Uh, this is a book that uh, Damien had told us had was kind of just put on hold, put on pause for the X of Tens event. And uh, as we saw over the past several weeks, uh, that's exactly what happened. When last we left off, before the swords got in the way, uh, Kitty was back, and she was vowing to uh, take vengeance on Sebastian Shaw, who killed her, uh, boy, uh, eight issues ago. Oh, no, ten issues ago. I I apologize. That was Marauders number six, where Sebastian Shaw killed Kitty, and now we're into Marauders number 16. Now, this had a February 2021 cover date. The story is called Consequences, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors by Edgar Delgado, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale December 9th of 2020. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page, and it's some uh, threatening words from Call Me Kate. I believe these are the last words she spoke to Sebastian Shaw before she uh, went underwater back in Marauders number 6. From here we get our double-page spread of roll call and creds. Our roll call is Storm, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Emma Frost, and Sebastian Shaw. Now our comics content starts with uh, Bishop and Storm having a clandestine meeting, where the former shows the latter a little bit of that vine that he discovered on Kitty's remains back when he found her body. Now he deduces that they're the kind that only grows in one place, and of course that place is Krakoa. Now, he's surprised that Storm, well, he's surprised that Storm shows no surprise at this uh, deduction because uh, she already knows that Shaw was responsible for Kitty's demise. Now, Bishop is, uh, he doesn't seem too happy to be left in the dark here, but he asks Storm if uh, this is going to go unanswered, to which Storm assures him that it will not. And so, we shift scenes over to Hellfire Bay, where Kitty and Emma are still on horseback, or back on horseback. I mean, hell, they could still be on horseback from when we saw them like four or five issues ago. We've already said that uh, you know this book had the the big old pause button pushed on it uh, back in the uh, a few months back. And they talk about how the contest of swords is over as they approach the door of the Black Keep. Now they knock, and Sebastian goes to answer. Now this interrupts his uh, evening of uh, drinking and complaining about. How they had to convene over all that otherworld nonsense of late, uh, to which I say preach on. Uh, as Shaw approaches his front door, Kitty phases her fist through it and socks him right in the mush. Now this was with her left hand where the word Shaw has been unfortunately tattooed. 
Now, as Kitty and Emma phase in, Shaw's all, you know, hey, bring it. You know, he reminds them that he is a master of kinetic energy. Well, Emma suggests that he hold that thought as she shoots him with a blast of power-nullifying hoodoo, probably from one of those Russian gimmicks or one of the Skate 800 uh, bad guys we've met since the dawn of X started that all seem to have these mutant-nullifying powers. Now, Kitty then knees Shaw in the gut, which causes him to topple over. Then the ladies go about smashing a few bottles of his priceless whiskey. Emma proceeds to read Shaw the list of his latest transgressions, uh, which include working against Krakoan interests with Omanes Varendi and Madripoor, basically serving Kitty and the Marauders to them on a silver platter, which, I fair is fair, he doesn't deny it. But he is steadfast that he did not know that Varendi were planning on poisoning the magical miracle meds. Kitty then takes a big ol' swig of some expensive bottle and does her best Lockheed impression by spitting it into the fireplace. Which, I mean, I get what they're going for here, but seems like it might be a little too risky for just a sight gag like this. Now, Shaw pulls himself back up, and he claims that, powers or no, he can hold his own against Kitty and Emma. This doesn't work out so good. Kitty gives him one of those, like, five-finger death punch things, like that straight chop thing, right to his Adam apple, and that drops him like a rock. At which point, Emma decides to tell him how things are going to proceed. You see, Shaw's got him two choices. Either Emma and Kitty can go to the council with this, spilling every last bean about his treachery, which will likely land him in exile down in the hole with Sabretooth for, uh, ever. Or... Maybe this can remain a, you know, an in-house Hellfire Club affair. But in order for that to happen, Shaw's going to have to play some ball. Shaw's all F this, and he makes a break for it. Now this leads to an actual fun use of the dreaded nine-panel grid, where Shaw smashes his way out a second-story window and splats on the ground outside the Black Keep, where Kitty calmly phases through the door to retrieve him. All the while, Glob Herman looks on and isn't quite sure what to make of the situation. It's a pretty cute scene, though I'm not sure why Glob would just be, like, loitering around Hellfire Bay, but what are you going to do? So back inside, here's where things start to go uh, last scene in Audition for old Sebastian Shaw. If you're familiar with the film Audition, uh, we're getting into, like, sort of, like, revenge porn here. Um, But first... But first, Shaw does attempt to flip the script. You see, he only killed Kitty in order to confirm that she was actually a mutant. Sounds totally legit, doesn't it? Now, we all know Kitty can't use the Krakoan gateways. So, as such, Shaw claims that, hey, maybe she's not actually a mutant after all. Maybe she's a Neo. Well, he he doesn't actually say that, but I kind of wish he had. Um, Anyway... Since Kitty did die, and was able to return via the Resurrection Protocols, this removes any doubt that our girl is indeed a mutant. Shaw explains this, and asks for forgiveness. Kitty knows that this is horse crap, but allows the discussion to move forward a little bit. You see, she wasn't Shaw's only victim that night. If you recall, there was also a tiny dragon who was uh, very nearly drowned. And would you look at that, here he is now because Storm and Lockheed enter the Black Keep. Now, Lockheed, we're told, demands blood, which is kind of adorable. At least in theory, when he actually goes for it, it's going to be a little gross, and we're going to get there in just a bit. 
so Lockheed wants blood, but Storm just wants to be there to witness what's about to come. So Lockheed, he uh, approaches Sebastian Shaw, and he bites his right eye out. He doesn't even eat it, either. Instead, he just spits it into the fireplace, which is uh, kind of adding insult to injury there. Now, Sebastian Shaw, as you might imagine, is quite displeased to be without a right eye. At which time, Kitty proposes a toast and pours Shaw a glass. Now, thinking that the revenge tour is over, as a you know nearly literal eye-for-an-eye sort of deal, Shaw takes the glass and drinks from it. Now, while he drinks, Emma assures him that the loss of his eye was not his punishment. She then tells him that the black bishop, Shinobi Shaw, will serve countries who recognize Krakoan sovereignty, which leaves the Red Queen, Kitty Pride, to take over the black market. And, oh, by the way, that drink that he just chugged was laced with that very same Verendi poison. Whoops. So, uh, looks like either Shaw is about to die where he'll be put on indefinite hold in the Resurrection queue, or he'll survive and very likely wind up much worse for wear. Turns up it's the latter. See, Shaw seizes up and appears to be in a somewhat vegetative state. Now Kitty slips an eye patch out of her pocket and places it over Shaw's right eye hole. Emma is a little bemused, and she comments that it's weird that Kitty would have a patch at the ready, to which Kitty suggests that you never know when you might need something like that. What I think happened is Kitty just bought the deluxe pirate costume from Party City, and it came with an eye patch, so she didn't want to throw it out. Just kept it in the pocket. You never know. From here, we head over to a quiet council meeting. And, of course, the quiet council were down to ten members, if you recall. Apocalypse is gone, and Jean quit. Now, even though we saw her still being a member of the council in the post-X of Ten's Hellion issue... I guess we could just say that was a continuity hiccup. Uh, Whatever the case, it would appear as though, at the moment, they are keen on replacing Gene and A. So they want to get back to 12 uh, members. But for now, it's 10. And they also seem to be missing a chair on the spring side. You remember these? all these quarters are named after seasons, and the spring side belongs to the Hellfire Club. And they're missing a chair over there because old Sebastian Shaw is now in a wheelchair. And we see Kitty rolling him up to the table. Professor Xavier's all, uh, hey, what happened to Shaw? And Kitty's got no comment, but agrees to put it to a vote whether or not they go into the discussion. And Xavier suggests that maybe they do vote, and he votes yes. He wants to know what happened to Shaw. Other yes votes include Magneto, Sinister, Exodus, and Nightcrawler. The no votes include Mystique, who is laughing before voting. She could give a rat's ass what happened to Shaw. Uh, Also, Storm, Emma, Kitty, and Shaw himself. Though, it might appear as though Emma is using Shaw as something of a ventriloquist dummy right here. Uh, It's got, like, the the little curly... um, you know, voice balloon thing. You know, the 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 little pointer. <laughs> what what do we call it? The carrot that comes out of the bottom of a uh, of a dialogue balloon. Here, it's a little wavy, so it may mean that there's some sort of mental hoodoo there. So we've got us a tie, five to five. Now it's worth noting, Doug Ramsey is here looking on. You know, he's doing what he always does, hanging out with uh, Krakoa, and he appears to have a rather disapproving look on his face. And maybe we'll discuss that in a little bit. 
We close out the issue with Shaw creepily smiling, assuring his quiet council compatriots that he is still Krakoa's humble servant. I don't know if this means that Emma's controlling him to say that, or if he himself is saying that, because this smile is very, very creepy, and doesn't look like a, a manufactured one. That looks, it looks very, very telling. After this, we get one last mostly blank quote page, and we are out of here. Next episode, we will have our penultimate juggernaut editing. So we're going to be looking at juggernaut number four of five. But how about we talk about this issue here? Because uh, it really, really feels good to be back with uh, our regularly scheduled Marauders programming here. Um, this was really good. And it actually felt like worthy of the rather long build we've gone through to get here. Um, you know, I mentioned it earlier. Kitty was killed in Marauders number six. This is Marauders number 16. That's that's almost a year's worth of books. Not accounting for double shipping, of course, but that's a lot of a lot of books in the uh, in the interim there. So it's uh, it's cool that we're finally getting here and uh, the the event we actually get it feels like something that was built to. It felt like something that um, actually paid off the conflict and the uh, and the event. I mean, it's total revenge porn. And while it might have been Maybe a little too far in the brutal. Well, it was actually very, very brutal. I was waiting for them to like get the piano wire out and start, you know, cutting limbs off, like in that audition scene. It, it was a uh, pretty brutal. But that said, I I feel like uh, this is kind of an evolution of Kitty's character here, in that uh, maybe she's becoming a little bit more like Emma Frost here. Um, if we look at that scene where uh, you know Lockheed takes an eye. Emma Frost and Storm were both there for it, you know? Um, it feels like, uh, at least to me, maybe Kitty is, like, symbolically shifting from one mentor to another, you know? Like, Storm was who she'd always go to and sort of model herself after, where here, I mean, this is this is definitely, like, a, a more of an Emma move to, uh, to turn Shaw into a, a vegetable here, right? Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, but that's kind of my takeaway from it. Um, it also might, uh, you know, explain why Doug was looking at the Hellfire crew with uh, such a unimpressed or disappointed look on his face uh, during the Quiet Council meeting here, which tells me, you know, not only was it, this wasn't brutality for brutality's sake. I feel like seeing that Doug was disapproving of this tells me that the brutality will be addressed. It was there with a purpose to maybe show that uh, there is a line and maybe they stepped over it here. You know, maybe there is no going back or maybe it'll be a tough road to get back to uh, the way we used to be. Because, uh, yeah, this was this was pretty extreme. Uh, let's talk about Shaw in his uh, vegetative state here. It feels like uh, quite the thing to just let hang out there without an investigation. You know, I don't know if this is something you put to a voter. This is something where you'd be like, nah, we better talk about this here. Um, I figure if one of the most powerful people in a society were to suddenly show up the way Shaw did, those around him would uh, kind of demand an explanation because uh, not to compare the Quiet Council to, like, the mafia or anything, but you got to figure that these people are kind of like made men and women, right? 
where they kind of are reliant on one another here because if there are suspected shenanigans about uh, how members of the council are treating one another, then none of them should feel safe. You know, there is no safety in that sort of a situation. So it seems weird that they would put it to a vote and not just demand answers. Especially, I mean, the guy that wants the answers just happens to be one of the most powerful telepaths in the galaxy. Right. Uh, now, if Emma is actually using Shaw as like a ventriloquist dummy, you figure Xavier would just be able to pick up on that. Right. You'd think so anyway. So that just seemed a little too neat and tidy of, a, of an ending for me. Um, that's not to say that we won't pick it up next time we discuss Marauders. I hope we do. Um, but to close this one out, it just felt a little too tidy, a little too convenient that nobody would ask any questions. Nobody would uh, demand that there would be some answers here. Don't know. I don't know what the internal politics of the council are. Maybe there are rules against that sort of thing. Maybe everything has to go to a vote, even something as, uh, you know, out, out in left field as this one is But overall, I think this was a very, very strong issue um, I'm really liking the the odd maturation of Kitty Pride here um, I don't think I'd ever see her doing something like this before this era And while it's not my favorite thing to see her doing It is something new, and it's uh, kind of bold and daring And uh, I don't think I could ever hold, you know being daring against a writer here So really had a good time with this one uh, And also the art was lovely As it uh, usually is in this book So super pleased to be back To our regularly scheduled Marauders programming I hope you all are as well And I look forward to hearing your thoughts As we move forward Speaking of thoughts Let's hop into the mailbag Before we cut out of here We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about Gwenpool Strikes Back he says, just a quick comment this time. I loved reading this series, and it was great to hear how enthusiastic you were about it. But I wanted to let your listeners know that this series is one of the few that doesn't work as well digitally. It is really worth finding the paper copies of this series, as the elements where Gwen interacts with the page layouts are compromised on screen. Apart from that, I would encourage everyone listening to buy Gwenpool Strikes Back. And that's not something I ever thought about. Uh, you guys know how, how I roll. I am, you know, paper only. <laughs> I don't do digital of anything here. So I never even thought that the digital version might compromise the gimmick. Uh, so thank you for, uh, for letting us know that. As with, any, as with any comic, I will always recommend you pick up the physical copy. You know, if you have, if you have the infinite space... <laughs> Stick it um, Always, always get the physical version But uh, especially with uh, Gwenpool Strikes Back here Because there are a lot of fun gimmicks That she uses uh, Interacting with uh, You know, I guess we could call it the fourth wall But it's something, it's like more than that You know, because it's It's actually It's actually addressing the reader But it's also addressing the medium And the just the, the, as, as trite as it might sound, the, the language of uh, sequential art, she just really has a good time with it. I'm very happy that you were happy with this book, Damien. I was hoping that you would dig it. And uh, like I mentioned a few times, I was a little nervous about including it in the lineup here because I didn't know how folks would receive it. Uh, I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm hoping to get a, uh, a hashtag started, hashtag Gwenpool for X Factor. We need to get her in that book. <laughs> we need more Gwenpool. And uh, 
since the writer of that is now the writer of X Factor, I think it uh, stands to reason that that would be a very good place to uh, to have her uh, take up residency. Give her a, give her a room in the boneyard, and we'll be all good. Uh, Damien wraps up with anyway. Until I manage to become best friends with Jeff the Land Shark, make mine X lapsed. I think uh, we're all best friends with Jeff the Land Shark. He's got a lot of love to share. Except when he's, you know, covered in uh, symbiotic goop Like he was in the King in Black uh, tie-in issue of Deadpool Which is about as adorable as it sounds If you want to see a venomized Jeff the Landshark Pick up Deadpool number 10 It's, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth the trip uh, But thank you so much for uh, writing in, Damien And I hope all is well uh, Next, our friend Evan talking about Fantastic Four number 26 Now he says, I am two issues behind on Fantastic Four, but I'm really hoping that Professor X's blow-off of Franklin turns out to be a plot by Dr. Doom or Nathaniel Richards or Kang or Lady Stiltman. It's not that I have any trouble believing Chuck would be that cold and aloof. Heck, if he started calling people flat scans at this point, it wouldn't surprise me all that much. But the delivery and presentation just fits so poorly. It doesn't even make sense as an editorial fiat. The unmutanting of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, Cloak and Dagger, and even Squirrel Girl all made a certain amount of sense outside the story. But Marvel has the rights back to the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, and they've both been announced as heading into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So the only motivation I can think of is that someone in story wants Franklin even more isolated and vulnerable. It hasn't been that long since we saw him at the end of time in a framing sequence for Mark Waid's History of the Marvel Universe... So that potential still has to be told there. Maybe Franklin even turned off his own powers over the responsibilities of this god role folks want to, folks seem to want to put him in. All that makes more sense than editorial going, not a mutant now. And uh, you're right. It, uh, I think like the only word I keep coming back to talking about um, the demutantifying of Franklin here is, is lazy. Because it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel necessary, first of all. It goes against so much of established history here. Uh, like suddenly, Cerebro is it sees that he's not a mutant after being a thing for many, many, many moons. Uh, you know, in real time and in you know comics, Marvel's time, sliding time scale. Very, very weird. Um, and the delivery, uh, uh, the whole, the whole revelation occurring over the course of like two panels, where. We're basically just getting a recitation of what Xavier found doing a Cerebro scan, rather than an actual conversation. Because uh, did did Franklin even say anything? I don't even know if he got a word in. It was just Xavier's like, "Hey, this is how it is, and I'm out." It just didn't didn't seem right. It didn't work for me. Now Evan continues. As for Arboro, or whatever his name is, in the early FF issues, it was established that he was close to Valeria's age, which I place around 13 or so. Not that that doesn't make the whole consort thing creepy, but it seems to be more cultural differences than him being a candidate for it to catch a predator. At one point, Reed wondered why she was so infatuated with him, and Sue basically compared him to a young Namor, which is a funny bit. Now, for folks who hadn't listened to that episode and might not be following Fantastic Four... This Arboro guy, um, in this issue anyway, he's drawn to be like a full-grown man. Uh, Valeria is madly, deeply in love with him, and apparently he asked her to be his uh, concubine of sorts. And so she travels through the Forever Gate to visit him on his home planet or home galaxy or whatever the hell it is. 
And she finds that he has uh, like a dozen concubines or consorts and is quite displeased that, uh, that he would uh, have so many, you know, women feeding him grapes and, and fanning him with, uh, you know, big uh, palm leaves and uh, rubbing his feet. It's, it's very, very strange. Um, I didn't know that uh, Arboro was supposed to be a teenager. He, he's drawn to look fully grown, so <laughs> it's very, very bizarre. Uh, you could see uh, old Chris Hansen popping his head in and asking him to take a seat after a you know, sexually charged online conversation with uh, young Valeria here, which I don't know what her age is. I know she was rapidly aged, her and Franklin both, but... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm used to seeing her as a boy, like a, like a grade school age girl. So it, it's strange. It's strange that uh, I don't know the need to. I, I get I get the whole idea of doing like puppy love here, but I, I don't get like sexualizing her in in this way. And granted, I have no context here. I haven't read those early issues, but seeing like a shirtless grown man being you know fanned by a bunch of women. Expecting Valeria to join in, that's a little weird and feels quite unnecessary. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Fantastic 426 and the demutinification of Franklin Richards there, Evan. I always appreciate it. Uh, next, uh, Nicholas talking about Juggernaut number three, or something that happened during the episode of Juggernaut number three. He says, I laughed way too hard at your quicksand anecdote. The world really is made of all types. Little did I know at the beginning of the episode that the least controversial part would be your legal opinions. And uh, what Nicholas is talking about, um, Juggernaut was in a uh, fight with Quicksand. Um, I think I think she's a Thor villain or maybe a Doctor Strange villain. I, I don't know who she is. I, I was expecting the Sandman, but we got Quicksand instead. And I talked about a recent um, boom at my... Blog, Chris is on Infinite Earths, where someone had discovered that I covered a bo- an issue of The Flash where Barry Allen is um, nearly sunk in quicksand. And it was linked to by a um, well-trafficked and prolific site that I, for whatever reason, clicked back on to see what it was because I thought maybe it was another comic book site or maybe it was a uh, just a content aggregator. That might have found the uh, the site, but no, it was a quicksand fetishist site. And yeah, I'm you know I'm not here to kink shame, but uh, I wasn't expecting that when I followed that uh, that link back. I I don't know, but <laughs> thank you so much for listening to that episode, Nicholas. It's always nice to hear from you. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a letter from our friend Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number seven. Now, Andrew says, I think this issue did a great job of setting the table for the series post-crossover. Seeing the new and improved Wild Child and Nanny was cool and creepy. It's nice to see that while they're not scrambled, something of consequence still came of their deaths. Wild Child is even drawn a little differently, which I thought was a cool detail. Nanny has a more sinister-looking suit of armor as well, which begs the question of how she actually got it. Does Krakoa provide her the means to make them? Can she survive outside the suit? And that's a great question because, you know, we do see Wild Child, like, actually hatch, right? We see him come out of the egg and he's standing upright. He, Like you mentioned here, he is drawn to be different. He's drawn to be less bestial and more, um, I guess, bipedal, for lack of a better term. Because he is, you know, he's always on two feet, but 
Here he's standing upright like a, like a human, right? Uh, Nanny, when she emerges, all we see is that her arms and her legs have popped out of the egg. So we don't get to see what she even looks like here, which, you know, we talk about, um, we talk about the way Wells uses the things we don't see just as much as the things we do see and is able to make things we don't see matter. Right? Um, so we don't see what Nanny looks like outside this shell. We don't know what her whole deal is here. We don't know how she got into the new shell. And I mean, that just makes us ask questions that well, I'm sure we'll eventually get some sort of an answer on here. Uh, maybe, hell, you know, maybe we won't. Maybe it's just one of those things that uh, we don't need to know. Uh, but I like that. I like that because when, when Nanny and Wild Child and Orphan Maker were killed on Iraq or Amenth or wherever the hell they died, one of the things I was looking forward to, it's like, well, how are they going to have Nanny come out of an egg and then moved into the other egg? We're going to have to see her, and we don't. Same with Orphan Maker here, which I don't know that I'd ever seen him out of the armor, and of course, I guess we didn't, but I didn't know why. I didn't know that he had this, you know, amazing power or this very, very dangerous power. So I was interested in seeing, you know, what you know, what the deal is, and we didn't see it, you know, and that's... That's a pretty cool thing, in my opinion. Andrew continues, We check back into the Havoc subplot, a nice reminder that everyone's favorite X-Man, well, mine at the very least, has something going on with his brains and isn't happy with his placement on the team. It would be very nice if we can get some footnotes again. Anyway, I'm pretty sure this is all continuing plot points from X-Men Blue, where Inverted Havoc was a baddie with Emma Frost and Bastion, but I've never read that series. It does beg the question why Alex isn't being treated with some psionic therapy while he serves on the team. Could there be a conspiracy? Well, yes, I think there is. <laughs> I really do think there is here. And I I had totally forgotten about the inverted havoc here from... That was Axis, wasn't it? Wow, that feels like it was yesterday and 150 years ago. That whole Axis thing. Ugh. I don't think I can tell you a single other thing that came out of that series. Didn't Carnage turn good and the Hobgoblin turn good? I I don't know. Maybe that's where Sabretooth turned good, too. So maybe I can tell you a couple things about it, but I can't tell you why it happened or, or how it wound up. But uh, I, I forgot all about that here, so I wonder if this is a lingering bit from Axis and being inverted and stuff. But as for it being a conspiracy, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure it is here because it, uh, and this is something we've talked about since day one with Hellions, is that, you know, Havoc should maybe get the benefit of the doubt. You know, we we can't really compare him to someone like Empath or Grey Crow or Orphan Maker. Havoc is, you know, Cyclops' brother. He's been affiliated with the X-Men for many, many years at this point. He's been the leader of the X-Men. He's been the leader of X-Men sub-teams. He should get the benefit of the doubt here, I feel. And uh, I think there is definitely a reason why they aren't going that route and that they're sticking him on this team. You know, we've theorized that maybe he's a mole. Maybe he's not. Or maybe he's an unwitting mole. Maybe he doesn't know that he's a mole. I don't know. But uh, I am looking forward to learning more about this here. Uh, I mean, I, I've every time we talk about Hellions or Zeb Wells, it's always very, very glowing. And this is more of it here. This is very traditional uh, X-Men storytelling here, where we're actually getting these bubbling subplots. And I couldn't be happier. It's, it's really, really well done. Andrew continues, I'm very intrigued with the Orphan Maker mystery of what his mutant power is. I'm not holding my breath that we'll get some definitive answers about him, which I'm fine with, but I like it being brought up rather than not addressed. 
I know him and Nanny are kind of D-list characters, but in the last 20-odd years, you'd think someone would have come up with an answer to what made him a mutant. I'm still not quite sure what Nanny's power is. And yeah, Nanny was a scientist for the right. She made smiley suits, but didn't know the right was an anti-mutant organization when she worked for them. She escaped them somehow. And it's interesting you say that, because when we started on Hellions here, I didn't know diddly about Nanny. I'd read a couple of stories with her, didn't know... I couldn't have even told you if she was a mutant or not, and I, I did some little bit of research and found out that she's a like a l- extremely low-level telepath, which I guess is a is something. <laughs> I guess it technically makes her a mutant, but uh, it ain't much, I suppose. Um, Andrew continues, and we check back into the Psylocke Sinister relationship from Fallen Angels, confirming that Sinister does have some version of Psylocke's daughter or at least the basic genetic data of her daughter, kept safe in his laboratory in some biodigitized state, probably some bastardized form of how mutant backups are stored in Cerebro. Sinister seems to drop his clown routine when they're alone, and you can see that his evil smugness just oozes out of this comic. I feel sad for Quanan. I like her in this book, and I'm on board for seeing her storyline play out more. What better praise for Hellions is there than that? (laughs) And you're right. Uh, The Psylocke we saw in Fallen Angels was uh, a little precious, a little unpleasant. (laughs) Not someone I wanted to... uh, Before I knew it was a miniseries, I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. What did we get ourselves into with this book? But uh, here, it's wonderful. And I'm loving the duality of Sinister here, where... When he's in front of a crowd, he's this entertaining buffoon, this clown, and uh, when he gets down to business, he is a scary dude, you know? He is, uh, he's is he got everybody's number, and I think you're right on the money here with the uh, idea that his uh, you know digitized files are, are some sort of a bastardized version of uh, the Cerebro backups, because... I mean, we gotta imagine that we are headed to the uh, the Chimera era, and I'm sure we're gonna find out that Sinister's already hard at work on them, especially after getting that DNA from uh, or that genetic data from uh, Amenth, and he's got the Apoth stuff. Anyone who'd used Overclock, he's got the Sinister clones. He's got just uh, the the Black Market clone factory here. I think I think this is going to Bloom into something really, really fun And really, really interesting I I really am looking forward to it Andrew continues If that had been all this issue had been I would have been happy But no, thankfully we get the amazing reveal Of everyone's favorite ex-villain Well, mine at the very least The man we love to hate, Cameron Hodge I know I wasn't too keen on the opening arc's nostalgia trip back to Inferno at first, though issue 4 with Madeline's death showed me I was in error, but I'm all for this nostalgia trip. The Extinction Agenda TPB served as a huge part in making me an X-Men fan as a kid, and at the time I had really no reference for who Cameron Hodge was, but I knew he must be a big deal by the way he was treated in that story. Come to learn, he wasn't always a giant, insane, racist techno-spider, but he was a demon summoner who gets his head cut off, and before that, just a bigot with an army of soldiers in powered armor with creepy smiley faces. Oh, and his arch-enemy is Archangel of all people, and his anti-mutant army is called the Right. Enough said. Best ex-villain. They don't make him like this anymore. What a wild time the late 80s were. And it's interesting. I mean, I had this. I had a similar... Uh, thought of Cameron Hodge because, you know, I, I mentioned my, you know, I bought X Factor number one and that was his first appearance and I just 
blew him up to be a huge character here And um, I came into the X-Men books right after Extinction Agenda But Extinction Agenda comics were always on the wall at the shop Because, I mean, they had the Liefeld covers They were they were hot books for the day And I saw Cameron Hodge on those covers Or a couple of the covers had Cameron Hodge as the as the giant, you know, racist techno spider And I, too, you know, blew him up into something that well, he's he's not. You know, I thought he was a an amazingly important villain and a huge part of X Men lore. And he, I mean, he's he's in there, but he's certainly not to the level I built him up to. Uh, it reminds me of the 1992 DC annuals, the uh, Eclipso, the Darkness Within. That was right as I was coming into the comic shops. You know, uh, the first DC stuff I saw were. The, the first DC stuff I paid attention to were these Eclipso things and, and so I blew Eclipso up into being like the most important villain in DC When, I mean, he's not So, it's I totally get that I totally get that And I, like you, was uh, very excited to see Cameron Hodge at the end of this issue Andrew continues A detail I really enjoyed was that these robotic smileys, once they detect the mutants and ID them as the X-Men, their programming allows them, or forces them, to express their agitated thoughts of subhuman swine and die mutant scum. Cameron Hodge actually programmed his machines to be racist, which is the most on-brand move he could make. Love to hate this guy. And that's a really good point there. I didn't even put two and two together, but yeah, Cameron Hodge programmed robots. To be racist, so definitely on brand and and definitely a a wild thing to see. Andrew continues, uh, Other than that, Sinister crying out for Clive is played so straight, and the panel layout so much like how a real shocking death would be shown on the page. It made me laugh out loud, something this series is getting very good at doing. It's just such a good book. And to chime in on something you brought up recently on the show, it's the only X book I buy. And if the podcast were to stop tomorrow, I'd continue to buy it without reading the other books. Well, maybe Cable and X Factor. And uh, I, I think I would second that emotion. Although, uh, if, I, if I wasn't, you know, insane and had to buy everything because that's just the way I am, I mean, Hellions uh, is, is definitely a, such a strong book. I would read it even if I uh, wasn't making myself read it. <laughs> it I mean, doesn't sound like high praise, but it is. It really is, because this is a very fun book. Every time I'm going through my X-Labs short box and we get to a Hellions uh, book, it's just, it's great. It's just a lot of fun here. It never feels like work, where some of these books, some of these books do feel like, uh, feel like it's, it's work to sit down with them for as long as I do. Um, but it's never that way with Hellions. If anything, Hellions is stressful the other way, because it's like, I gotta rein myself in from gushing too much about it And I know those are probably my most repetitive episodes And that's saying something, because I'm a very repetitive guy But the Hellions episodes, and anytime we bring up Hellions in the mailbag I feel like I get very repetitive just saying If you don't read this book, you should read this book It's a very good book Uh, Now Andrew wraps up with So until Hazard shows up on Krakoa, make mine X-lapsed Oh boy, Hazard Um, Now, talking about first impressions my first X-Men comic was X-Men Volume 2, number 13. The big bad in that was Hazard. Now, if you don't know Hazard, you might not know Hazard. He, he, he's not a big villain, but uh, I remember just being really, really taken by this character because we found out that he had this history with Professor X and like, their, their fathers worked together in Alamogordo or something. 
And I thought Hazard was just going to be like the biggest thing ever. I remember looking at a wizard, and I had issue 13 of X-Men, and I found out that Hazard's first appearance was issue 12 of X-Men, and I'm like, oh, I gotta get issue 12. I gotta have Hazard's first appearance. And uh, his story really didn't go that far. Uh, it was 12 and 13, and I think he was gone until Mike Carey brought him back in X-Men Legacy, uh, probably... 15, 20 years later So all Hazard didn't really get much play I do wonder if he's on Krakoa somewhere though He very well might be He might be in the background of, a, of, a, of an issue somewhere But uh, <laughs> I definitely appreciate the email, Andrew Always look forward to hearing your thoughts uh, If anyone else out there would like to chime in with their thoughts Please, please feel free to do so You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all the Chris and Reggie stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for me. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day. And until next time, as always, talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 142 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I just got back from the comic shop here. It's not terribly often that I go to the shop on Wednesdays, but uh, today a book came out that uh, we've been waiting for for a very long time. It's one that's been solicited probably three or four times over the course of the past year, and so... uh, I think the place I usually get my books at, which is a DCBS, um, I think it was a case of The Boy Who Cried Wolf or The Publisher Who Cried uh, Children of the Atom because uh, I wasn't able to pre-order it. I, I think, uh, And I know I have pre-ordered it like three times before, but this time when it actually came out, uh, they didn't have it listed, and they don't have the subsequent issues listed either. So 
At least once a month, I'm going to have to go to the shop on Wednesday to pull uh, an issue of uh, Children of the Atom. I don't know if it's an ongoing. I don't know if it's a miniseries. I don't know what the hell it is. I didn't. I looked at the first couple of pages of it, but uh, we're not going to be getting to it for quite a while, so I didn't want to ruin it. But uh, it's notable because it is. Uh, it looks like it's you know children. It's young characters here. It's written by Vida Ayala, who's also writing the book starring young mutants that we're going to be discussing today. It's a new era for the New Mutants. It's New Mutants Volume Four, Number Fourteen. At a February 2021 cover date, the story is Welcome to the Wild Hunt. As mentioned, written by Vita Ayala with art by Rod Reese. Led as VC's Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale December 16th of 2020. Now we open in flashback land. It's Egypt sometime during the 16th century. Here we meet a son of a merchant who is a little bit different. He's got powers, you see. Powers capable of protecting those around him. Unfortunately, when the plague came, he could not protect his father. So his father passes. After his father passed, he found, this is the child, of course, he found himself attacked by a predator. A very Sinkovician predator uh, called the Shadow King. The boy, of course, is Amal Farouk, who, if you remember, I threw a bit of a fit about seeing in some cluttered throwaway scene during the Empire cash-in, which, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But first, we got us a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. It's a long list. Danny Moonstar, Karma, Warlock, Magic, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Fauna, Anole, Nature Girl, Scout, Rainboy, Petra, Sprite, Dust, Cosmar, and No Girl. Next, we have an info page, and it's a letter from several of the new mutants, Danny, Rain, Proudstar, Karma, and Ilyana, to the Quiet Council. Here, we find that the young mutants are, uh, well, they're bored and directionless. Kinda like most of this volume has been up to this point, eh? Hmm. Professor X writes back and requests that they put together a possible solution to the teenage malaise overtaking the Academos habitat. Well, say what we will about Charles Xavier, uh, dude knows how to passive-aggressively delegate, doesn't he? It's like, oh, the kids are bored? You take care of it. And uh, <laughs> you just uh, you just volunteered for the gig. Um, finally, we're back to comics, and we're at the sextant. Karma and Danny are talking about Karma's nightmares. You see, she's been haunted ever since getting stuck in Cosmar's surreal, warped-reality goop bubble over in Russia a few issues back. Uh, she can't remember the dreams all the way, but she knows that they're there, to the point where she's actually afraid to go to sleep. And so, Danny decides to have a look. Now, this dream takes place during the final battle against the Iraqi Horde during the Exosword's destruction. Now, Karma touches the mind of an Iraqi, but... Rather than it being cold and hard like it was in real life, in the dream it's hot and filled with hate for her. The face of this Iraqi morphs into that of a more normal human. Not sure exactly who this is. It may be, maybe it's that shadowy kid king from the open. I mean, Karma does have history with him. Um, maybe it's Karma's twin brother. She does have a twin brother she's been trying to search for for like ever, right? I, I don't recall. I think I could have sworn like her first appearance was like trying to track down her brother. 
Maybe I'm mistaken. I thought that was why she left the, the team as well. But it's been a long time since I read any of that stuff here. Now, Danny, who is reading the uh, the dream here, she recognizes this human, uh, but cannot put her finger on exactly who it is. She claims she can now feel karma's fear and decides it's probably best to ixnay the fantastic voyage into dreamland for the moment. Next, magic and warlock saunter in. And, you know, it's actually kind of nice to see warlock, you know, not pretending to just be Doug's arm. I wonder what Mora feels about this. Um, it actually doesn't seem like anybody cares all that much. Uh, it's weird, because, you know, in all the earlier scenes that we've seen Warlock, uh, I feel like we were given the impression that there was something, like, a little bit weird, or a little bit off, or just undermining about Warlock's presence. And, I mean, here he is, just chilling with his pals. Um, maybe the original plan fell through, or maybe... Maybe the whole time it was just a red herring, maybe giving us a little bit of misdirection. You know, we're paying attention to things that are obvious, the obviously underhanded or obviously or hidden in plain sight. Maybe is better a better way to say that. And maybe in paying so much attention to, you know, Doug's wacky arm, maybe we miss something. You know, I I don't know that it's worth rereading anything, but uh, you never know. Stranger things have happened. Now, Warlock says that he's giving Doug and Bay some time to, quote, be happy together. So uh, they're probably banging. Uh, Magic asks her pals what they're up to and why they look so serious. She then chugs like a gallon of Fauna's excrement, which is to say um, that weird coffee that Fauna Digests and uh, poops out um, Rain pops in and tells Magic that Danny's just doing the psychic therapist thing And, you know, they go to talk about it some more But the conversation is interrupted by a knock at the door And it's Warpath And he's dressed like a geeky camp counselor Complete with a whistle around his neck Rain and Eliana have a chuckle at how silly he looks uh, He informs the crew that it's time for work And also that his geeky outfit is quite breathable now here is where the new direction comes in. The old New Mutants are going to be training the new New Mutants, I guess. It's like the old, you know, what do we do with the old New Teen Titans question that DC Comics seems to ask every three to four years. And the answer is always, oh, I know, let's have Dick, Donna, Roy, and Wally train the next generation. Again. <clears throat> so... We're off to the nature room, which uh, isn't actually a thing. Uh, it's basically a sparring session between two squads of new news. We've got the ferals versus the elementals. So let's meet them, because they're quite the assortment. We did cover them in the roll call, but I think it's worth uh, looking at how um, era-diverse these characters are, because they're from all over the map here. Uh, we have the ferals. From left to right, we have Anol who's a Tsunami-era new mutant, so early, mid-2000s. Fauna, a brand-new Hoxpox-era mutant. Nature Girl from the Marvel Legacy-era Generation X. And Scout, X-23's clone, and we're going to be talking quite a bit about her in a little while. Across the way, we got the Elementals. We got Sprite from the Jean Grey School era. Petra from Deadly Genesis. Rainboy, I haven't the foggiest idea. And Dust from the Morrison era. And, well, they spar. Now, after several pretty gorgeous pages, this is Rod Reese, the Elementals win. 
The old new mutants give the thumbs up and tell the Tots and Petra that it's time to learn something new. Something about using their mutant powers in tandem. Which uh, is giving me Moratory Monday flashbacks for anybody who listened to that series of programs. So, Magic, Wolfsbane, and Danny team up against Warlock, Karma, and Warpath to demonstrate this whole synergized um, mutant power deal. And we see Magic and Danny link up to perform a Mirage projection through a Magic teleportation disc. Then we see Magic and Wolfsbane do this gimmick where, like, one wolf falls into the into a teleportation disc, and then out the other side, five more pop out. Not sure how that works. Maybe it has to do with Danny as well. Uh, Warpath and Warlock synergize, giving James some giant mech armor, and it's all pretty cool. And the new news thinks so too. We see that Cosmar is here among the peanut gallery looking on. Uh, she didn't take part in any of the training, but she's here to watch. Now, the old news asks if there are any questions, and, well, there are. You see, Scout, the clone of X-23, she wonders what might happen if synergizing makes things more dangerous. To which, Rain tells her that that's old-fashioned thinking. After all, they got powers of resurrection right now. So, you know, balls to the wall. If you die, we'll bring you back. Well, here's where it gets good. Scout asks what happens if someone like her dies. Remember, she is a clone. Rain says, well, of course Scout would be brought back. To which Scout says, well, what about Evan? And I assume that this is a reference to the young Apocalypse clone from Uncanny X-Force. And then she asks, what about Madeline Pryor? Huh, now you speak in my language. Now, if you remember what uh, Scott was told about the resurrection of Maddie over in Hellions, was that since she was a clone, she wasn't worthy of resurrection. The Quiet Council wasn't keen on having multiple versions of each character just hanging out on Krakoa, especially problematic ones. Now, the New Mutants don't seem to know the particulars. You know, they don't have a representative on the Quiet Council. The closest thing they've got is Magic acting as a Krakoan captain. All that they know is that Havoc was quite upset that they wouldn't bring Maddie back because she's a clone. Now, Rain suggests that maybe it was due to Maddie doing bad things. To which, Scout reminds her that uh, Mr. Friggin' Sinister is a power player on the Quiet Council. Magic decides that, uh, well, there's no winning this one, and so the discussion has gone on long enough. She tells Scout that Maddie has a long list of crimes against both mutants and humans. She'd broken Krakoa law, which is a total cop-out of an answer, of course. Uh, she then suggests that perhaps Evan Sabanor might already be sitting in the resurrection queue, even as they speak. Which is a total blow-off of a suggestion, of course. Uh, she then dismisses the kids... And uh, Scout, we can see by the look on her face that the, her concerns and worries have not been assuaged, nor should they be, because uh, she asked a good question. Now we stick with a quartet of young mutants, which include Rainboy, Cosmar, Anol, and No Girl. Along the way, Cosmar momentarily loses control of her powers, which warps Rainboy into a puddle. He soon recovers. And then we follow these four to a gnarled and twisted corner of Krakoa where they're greeted by Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. And they all giddily tell him everything they'd learned today. 
We wrap up with an info page with Danny suggesting that Proudstar start a diary, and she even gives him a slew of writing prompts, none of which we're actually going to talk about. Uh, For all I know, they're just pranking poor Warpath again. I don't know. It's like, yeah, we're going to get this guy to write a diary. Uh, But that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, X-Force gets their book back from Wolverine, though uh, if I had to bet, I would assume that uh, there'll be plenty of him in there, too. But we got a little bit to talk about, don't we? This was a uh, this was a pretty good issue here. A uh, really good issue, actually. It's nice to see this book get a bit of direction. Which, since the opening Hickman arc, it's needed quite badly. And, uh, I mean, while the concept that we're given is well-trodden, perhaps even a little too well-trodden, given how often we see the exact same setup in recent revitalizations of the Teen Titans... And even like the Tsunami-era New Mutants, at least it's something. You know, it'll hopefully not wind up being like a Monster of the Month book, like the Brisson run kind of was. It's like, we're going to go to Nova Roma for this one. We're going to go to the farm for this one. We're going to go to Russia for this. It, it, uh, it felt like an exercise in treading water, where um, nothing really built on anything. I mean, we did get Cosmar out of it, but uh, so far she's... Stood in the background and kind of just made weird faces So, I don't know Let's do some takeaways here And we're going to start with the biggie Scout asks the same question we've been asking What happens when a good mutant clone dies? Right? I mean, there's no guarantee That the Quiet Council will bring her back Should something happen to her After all, I mean, Evan Apocalypse was As far as I can remember He was a good kid And yet He ain't back yet (laughs) He's still in resurrection limbo And I wonder if we're gonna If we're gonna hear anything more about that I mean, this is a great question And not only because it allows us to talk about The heartbreaking Maddie death scene again Speaking of which um, Hey editors, I know you're not listening And I know what I'm about to ask for Might be a little too comic booky And maybe uncool with the kids these days Who don't read your books anyway But maybe Maybe drop a little note in here to tell people who might not be reading Hellions Where they can get the details on the Maddie Resurrection woe, right? I mean, it couldn't hurt, could it? Uh, It might remind you that you work in comics, which might be a bummer for you But it would only help the readers who, at the end of the day, matter Plus it might actually tip someone off to what a hidden gem the Hellions book is Someone who might have dismissed it might be inspired to pick it up and realize, wow, this might be the best book on the shelves right now. Now back to the question, though. Uh, Enough of my uh, weird soapbox here, and let's get back to the question. Because I'm happy that Scout asks it. I'm happy to see it come up here because, well, first of all, it tells me that it hasn't been forgotten, right? I mean, it's it's out there. It's on the table. Uh, It'll... Hopefully be something that will be addressed before long And hell, might even serve to further lead to a potential schism In the polite Krakoan society I think we may have just read a very seminal Reign of X scene So let's keep this one in, our, in the forefront of our minds here Just let's keep it in the, uh, in the batter box here uh, Because, I mean, it's not like the editors will ever tell folks Where they could read it later on down the line Because that might be too comic booky Now, I would almost wager that Scout has been put on the short list of characters who are going to die very, very soon, just to see how the resurrection or non-resurrection actually plays out. It might be a catalyst, 
You know, if she does die and the Quiet Council decides, yeah, well, she's a clone. She had her chance. We're not bringing her back. Well, we might have a lot of angry young mutants um, striking back at the Quiet Council. You never know. And I mean, if upcoming covers of the X-Men are any indication, X-23 should be returning from the vault pretty soon, so maybe that's when this will all fall into place. I hope it's soon, and I hope it leads to something big. Let's shift scenes and talk about the Shadow King. Not my favorite villain. Not my favorite villain, but I will concede that he's a very important one. As mentioned during our discussion of the Empire cash-in, I felt like he was way too important a character to just show up in a crowd scene. Kind of like how I complained that Colossus was you know, showing up in crowd scenes, fighting alongside the X-Men during X-Men plus Fantastic Four. I feel like we got to be a little bit more careful about who we cram into meaningless crowd shots, just in case it's revealed that there's more story to these folks and we don't have to explain things away or have to deal with creators and editors mocking us for caring too much. Just It saves us all trouble, right? Uh, I'll say it's cool seeing him here, though I wonder if he'll be playing a similar role as Exodus in some sort of indoctrinating the younger set sort of deal. It's not clear here if he's going to be like just a creepy devil's advocate sword, or if he's going to be a straightforward antagonist, if he has actual designs on you know doing bad, we don't know yet. And I mean, it's still Krakoa. You gotta assume that Xavier knows he's here, right? I mean, maybe not, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. Now, those are my main two takeaways. Of course, it should go without saying that one of the major takeaways of this book is how ridiculously... Amazing it looks It is Rod Reese He's channeling Sienkiewicz for some of these pages He's just doing his own thing on other pages It's gorgeous um, If you are collecting these books digitally This, uh, as Damien would say This is one that you should get physically Because it is something to behold It is truly, truly gorgeous work um, Some minor takeaways I have uh, We see No Girl here I can't remember the last time we might have seen No Girl If I'm thinking, like, was it Generation Hope <laughs> last time we saw her? Um, it makes me wonder, why in the Age of Resurrection is she still a brain in a jar? Uh, it seems kind of strange here. Um, my last takeaway, and it's a very minor one, and it's a... Uh, it's kind of a wobbly one. It's not something that I have any sort of uh, grounding in here, but I mentioned at the start of the show that I went out and I bought Children of the Atom today which is focused on, as far as I can tell from looking at the cover and looking at the roll call page, Younger Mutants. Makes me wonder if we need two books like this by the same writer. I mean, I've talked about the bloat in this line, and isn't it bloated enough? Like, do we need two kid books? Um... Why not bring young X-Men back and Generation X back? And just We'll just have a whole corner of these young uh, mutant books here. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Children of the Atom is going to be. It could be something altogether different. It could have a Thunderbolt-style, you know, uh, gotcha at the end of the first issue, for, more, for all I know. I kind of hope it does, because if it doesn't, that means we've got two young mutants books to deal with. <laughs> Every single month, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, I mean, I enjoyed this issue a lot. 
hopefully I'll enjoy Children of the Atom a lot, and I did enjoy uh, Vita Ayala's, um, I want to say, Storm chapter in X of Tens, the uh, the solo Marauders issue with uh, with Storm in Wakanda. That was a good issue as well. So I've got all the faith in the world that uh, they've got it uh, under control here. But you know, just I always think about the bloat. I always think about the bottom line, and I always think about uh, how much money. Uh, these companies are demanding of us to keep up with our favorite characters, and I guess no matter how old I get, at the end of the day, I'm still that kid who was uh, saving up his lunch money every single day, going without food so I could go out and buy comics. And uh, I have to assume or hope that there are uh, there's a new generation of that who's uh, having to make these decisions uh, at a young age, where they're going to put their money and. With Marvel glutting the shelves here And I mean, just the industry in general Just overloading the shelves With just so much content I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches In that there's a lot of good stuff out there But uh, there's also a lot, of, uh, a lot of competition For a young person's dollar Assuming that there are any young people Actually buying these But uh, that's all I got to say About New Mutants number 14 I am very, very optimistic For this new direction as mentioned, it is a little well-trodden, but I'm hopeful that uh, eh, maybe maybe another shoe is about to drop, and uh, it'll be something a little bit different than uh, what, we're, what, might, what we might be expecting just on the face of it. But with that said, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Evan, who's talking about Hellions number 7. He says... I'm glad I have you and the rest of the X-Laps mailbag crew to help me out when I when I read things too fast. When I spotted Nanny in the resurrection chamber, I was like, "Wait, so she already she really looks like an egg?" I totally missed the fact that she was more modest than Wildchild and that Wells and Segovia were pulling off the comics equivalent of Wilson hiding his face behind Tim Taylor's fence. And in a comic with a body count to rival X-Force and what should be, but definitely isn't, the least sympathetic roster in the line. And it's true That's funny Because it is basically uh, Wilson hiding behind the fence Or hiding behind anything Uh, That was a a heck of a good running gag They had in that show And yeah, they totally pull it off here uh, With Nanny and Hellions Definitely Uh, Evan continues I'm not familiar enough with Orphan Maker To know if his powers ever been mentioned before My guess is Nanny got to him Before anyone could really catalog his powers If the armor kept it from manifesting, Professor X and the not-X-Men may have only recently realized the true threat he represents. Or, you're spot on that it's specific threat to Krakoa, like makes everybody tell the truth or nullifies resurrection. Uh, A bit specific, admittedly. I mean, that's what makes the mystery so good. Um, Because we don't know. and We know that Krakoa is out for itself. We know that uh, the Quiet Council is... Oddly, you know, overprotective of their secrets We know that they have secrets We don't know how many secrets they have All we know is the one big secret But there could be more So if Orphan Maker's power is to reveal secrets Or uh, some some sort of thing that will trick trip up everything You know, um I think that's a really cool thing here And it makes sense that it would be something Krakoa-centric Because, like I mentioned during the discussion of the issue If his power always had the potential to nuke the planet Then there's absolutely no way that the X-Men, the Avengers, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Any hero wouldn't be trying to take this guy out while he was still a villain 
if his powers could destroy the planet, the X-Men should not have let him get away as often as they did. I mean, we covered an issue of uh, Generation X during Merry X Lapsed that featured Nanny and Orphan Maker, and it was basically like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon at the end with, like, Orphan Maker just, like, running away after, like, an ice cream truck. It's like, if he could destroy the planet, <laughs> maybe we'd do something about him. So part of me is thinking that the powers that nobody should be allowed to see have something to do with uncovering an inconvenient truth about Krakoa, the Professor, Mora, something along those lines. But we don't know, and that's great, because, it I mean, it could be a nuke thing, it could be anything, and the fact is, we're invested, we're looking forward to it, and we're interested. And when a comic can make you feel those emotions and feel invested, that's a winner, because it's, it's a rare thing these days, isn't it? Now, Evan continues. I'm enjoying Sassy Sinister's portrayal, but I don't get why the Quiet Council is letting him get away with everything that he is. If the Hellions can figure out, almost instantly upon resurrection, that he's full of it, surely the Council can too. The reaction showed that they weren't buying his act, but why were they giving him so much rope? Surely Mora has been working for years at this point to reverse-engineer his cloning process and copy his records. With the, five and the cerebro, with the five and the cerebro cradles, why do they need to let him have so much power? But I have a feeling the answer to those questions are going to be part of the story and not a flaw in it. Almost definitely. Almost definitely. Because it's, it's like one of those worst-kept secrets, right? I mean, Sinister is... Like, I, I don't know... The one thing I don't get about him, and it's something I love and I hate, is that Sassy Sinister is so aloof that I don't know if he actually thinks he's getting away with it or if he knows that they're on to him. Because, I mean, it could be either way, because he could just be so eccentric and so not given a damn <laughs> about what people think that he's like, yeah, I'm just going to screw with these people. If they know it, fine. If they don't, yeah, even better for me. As for why the council is just letting I mean, uh, call me Kate is there like, are we really letting this guy talk? And Emma's like, yeah, I guess so. It's interesting. It's interesting and it's entertaining and it has us asking all these questions. And like you said, I think that this will be part of the story. I think this will lead somewhere. I've got no reason to think that it won't. Uh, because, I mean, Hellions is a, a tightly written book. And I feel like everything that comes up in that book will will bear fruit. And I'm fairly confident that the Sinister story will play out. It's, you know, it, it's too pivotal not to. Especially with all we know about the potential futures. And all we know about what he did in, in Amenth or Araco or wherever he was. Uh, and all we know about his black market. Which isn't much, but we know that it exists. So I think this will be leading somewhere. And maybe... I mean, Mora, Mora doesn't want him there. That was something that uh, Xavier and Magneto did behind her back. But at the same time, I believe, and I could be mistaken here, but the uh, Chimeras were important to a couple of her lives. So maybe, maybe it's a, a case of like, well, keep your, you know, keep your enemies closer, right? Uh, where it's like, okay, well, we have him here. We don't trust him, but at least we can keep kind of an eye on him here. And he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So as long as, you know, we have first dibs on all of his machinations, and if we need the chimeras, 
this might be the way to go about doing it. But um, I love that we're asking so many questions about a book that I basically dismissed <laughs> before before I opened it, of course. I was not expecting anything out of Hellions, and boy, we get a lot to talk about here. And I mean, it's even it's even bleeding into this uh, this issue of New Mutants we discussed today, and it's all the better for it. So it's really really fun. Loving this corner of our of our X verse here. So, thank you so much for uh, checking in there, Evan. We're going to wrap up with a letter from Andrew Franklin, and it's a short one about our discussion of Marauders number sixteen. He says, "When talking about the last issue of Marauders, you mentioned the movie Audition. We all know you don't watch movies, but is Audition the one exception?" Now, if you haven't listened to the uh, Marauders number 16 episode, um, it ends, or actually the whole thing is basically, I called it revenge porn, because it was Kitty Pride, Emma Frost, and Lockheed basically taking out their frustrations on Sebastian Shaw for what he did back in Marauders number 6, you know, killing Kitty and nearly killing Lockheed here. And uh, I referenced the movie Audition, and uh, even in my... Little announcement tweet I said that we should maybe call this book Maraudition Because uh, it was pure uh, revenge fantasy playing out here The movie Audition, which, no, I haven't seen it (laughs) I haven't seen it, but I know about it Uh, There's a lot of movies, like in, especially in like the transgressive cinema sort of stuff uh, Things like um, very extreme cinema I've never seen a lot of it, but I know about a lot of it because I've read analyses, analyses, and I have friends who review movies who uh, tell me about these things. And uh, Audition was one of them, and I did see clips of it, and I saw clips of the end of it, which made me kick myself for not watching it blind because, um, from what I understand, like, it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it starts off as almost a weird misogynistic comedy where a man is auditioning women to be his girlfriend, be his mate, or be his wife. Um, and it ends with this girl who was chosen, who was depicted all throughout the movie as a very shy and reserved and modest girl, um, drugging him, I believe, and then uh, dismembering him with piano wire because uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but the scene in Marauders reminded me of that scene because I didn't see the brutality coming. I figured it was going to be a lot of empty threats, maybe not empty threats, but a lot of threats. I figured that Emma Frost, being as calculating as she is, would just be like, hey, we know what you did. And now you're going to play ball or you're going to go in the hole. And and, when, and as the story went into that, I was like, okay, well, he's going to make a deal. And we're going to have to keep an eye on him from this point on. But no, then it then it actually, it actually escalated. We have Lockheed come in and eat his eye or chew it out and spit it into a, into a fireplace. And then he's poisoned and left in a vegetative state. I mean, I was not expecting any of that. So it was uh, definitely a zig when I was expecting a zag, And it only reminded me of uh, that one scene that I did see in Audition, which was the, uh, the big, brutal scene <laughs> toward the end of it. But yes, to uh, answer the question, no, <laughs> I've never seen Audition. Um, I probably won't since I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see movies because I can't sit still long enough. But at the same time, I, I know the twist. So I don't know that I'd get anything out of it here. And it's... 
not the kind of movie that I'd, you know, try to uh, have the wife watch and be like, hey, check this out. <laughs> and they just watch, watch her face as the, uh, as the torture implements come out. I, I think I'd probably be uh, sleeping in my car that night, perhaps. But uh, the scene in Marauder is definitely... Uh, made me think of Audition uh, If anybody has seen Audition And maybe you can tell me if the scenes did uh, Well, not play out the same, but had a similar tone <laughs> Maybe you could let me know I might be completely off the mark here And just projecting what I think the movie is about But uh, thanks so much for writing in there, Andrew uh, That's going to do it for the mailbag And for the episode here If anybody out there would like to check in and say hello Or how do you do, or whatever you want Feel free to hit me up. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearths.com and xlaps.chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X Men. And you can listen to all your Chris and Reggie programming at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today. Had a heck of a good time with this issue. And you know, I mean, we're what, like uh, four or five issues into the Reign of X? And I don't think there's been a dud yet. I've enjoyed just about it. I've enjoyed every issue we've covered so far since the end of X of Ten. So that can only be a good thing. And I'm hopeful for more of the same. And I hope you are too. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 143 of X-Last, where X-Force gets their book back from Wolverine. How about that? Uh, well, there'll, there'll be plenty of Wolverine today, but uh, this is not like the X-Force issues we got during X of Tens, so happy about that. So how about we just hop right in? This is X-Force, volume 6, number 15, 
had a February 2021 cover date. Stories called Trench Warfare, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors, Guru EFX, light is VC's Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits, Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December 16th of 2020. And uh, hey, uh, you'll remember that story that was playing out in this book before X Attends came and interrupted everything? You know, that one where Beast had frog-marched Colossus past a group of his peers and friends declaring him guilty of collusion with the Russian baddies without any sort of trial or even, you know, just asking him? Well, that's exactly where we're picking up. Jean Grey is reading Colossus's mind, and I'm only assuming that he'd given her permission to do so, as otherwise it would be a pretty big mutant rights violation. Now, Beast and Wolverine, they're waiting outside, Somewhat impatiently, uh, the former beast, he is uh, feeling quite froggy. Wolverine gives him the, no bub, we ain't going in there. And he also makes it clear that Beast is not his favorite person right now. And also that he doesn't trust him at all. And I really can't blame him. I would say that this scene probably would have played out a lot better had this book not been swept into several pointless chapters of the Festival of Swords, but... And we can't change the past, now can we? Now inside, Jean's doing the thing, and uh, we see a whole bunch of colossal memories. Recent memories, though. Uh, Looks like we get a glimpse of what went down during that mission in Russia that nobody seems to want to completely fill us in on, despite the fact that we've had, like, 15 issues of this book since it was said to have happened. Eh. Also, some thoughts of that water mutant Kayla who Peter's been uh, chumming around with in the Savage Land. At this point, Jean's seen all she needs to see, and so they exit. She informs Beast and Logan that Colossus is clean. She tells Beast that uh, Peter didn't ask for an apology, but she's going to insist that he gives him one anyway. From here, we get one of them uh, mostly blank quote pages. Uh, Colossus says some stuff about painting. Um, Then a double-page spread of roll call and cred. We got Beast, Sage, who I don't think shows up at all in this issue, Colossus, Domino, Black Tom Cassidy, Marvel Girl, which makes me wonder if this is the only book that still calls Gene that on the roll call page. I think, maybe. Uh, We also have Wolverine and Forge. Let's get back to comics here, and we get a couple of pages of discussion on how Krakoa has a constantly changing landscapes. Some days hills show up, valleys, peninsulas, yada, yada, yada. Point is, it transforms a whole heck of a lot. And while we read this narration, we see this gross-looking black pod sort of purged from Krakoa itself. It lands, and it rolls down a hill before splashing into the water where it sinks. More on that in just a little bit. These panels are intercut with Jean talking to Hank and Logan about a replacement for her on X-Force. She suggests that Colossus would probably be the best candidate probably since he was in that group shot on the cover of X-Force number one. Well, actually, it's because he's got family ties with Mikhail Rasputin, who is the big bad here, and uh, Beast will approach Peter with this offer. But first, how about we take a look at the other Russian that X-Force has chained up in their basement, Omega Red. Jean reports that she can't seem to scan him. Uh, there's a fog over his mind. He's been mesmerized, you see. Likely by Dracula, since this is tying in with the Vampire Nation subplot in Wolverine. Not that we'd get any sort of editorial notes to inform us of that. 
Now Wolverine asks what the next step might be, to which Beast says they let him go. Well, Logan doesn't care for that one bit. And in fairness to him, it probably would have helped Beast's case if he explained why he would suggest such a thing instead of just dropping a line like that. Kind of feels like we got us some manufactured conflict going on here, which is a real shame since there's actual conflict between these characters at this moment. And we don't need gimmicky dialogue to facilitate them getting, you know, getting into each other's faces here. They're, they're, they are at odds. We don't need a silly, we let them go. I mean, come on. Now, Beast finally gets back to explaining what he's talking about. You see, Omega Red has a carbonadium or carbonadium synthesizer, which keeps him alive. In it is a detonator planted by Dracula in order to keep him in line. Now, at this point, Jean's heard enough. She throws up her hands and she's like, I don't want any part of whatever you two knuckleheads are going to be cooking up. So she makes like a tree and gets the hell out of there. Beast tells Logan that he has a plan to make Omega Red an unwitting double agent for them. We shift scenes back to that inky, nasty pod thing from earlier where it's grown tendrils and is feeding off of a whale. Now, for a minute, I thought this was going to be like a King in Black tie-in and uh, that we were going to be dealing with some sort of symbiotes, and I suppose we still might be, but I don't think so. Next, we rejoin Beast as he chats up Chucklehead Forge, who... Boy, he's acting even worse than before. I'm almost surprised that this goofball doesn't like have like a whole bunch of like wet towels at the ready to snap at his friend's butts. You know, he's just a real douche. Anyway, Beast asks if he can create a replacement for Omega Red's carbonadium synthesizer with an audio surveillance and homing beacon gimmick built in. Now, Forge thinks on it for a second and he wonders if there's something Hank isn't telling him. To which, our beast assures him that he's got everything under control. At which time, our view shifts back to Omega Red, who is now dead, with a great big smoldering hole where his chest used to be. Hmm. Info page, all about the resurrection protocol on Omega Red. Now, Beast's plans are explained here. You see, he killed Omega Red to have him resurrected with this tweaked sea synth thing implanted in him. This will allow the Krakoans to spy on the vampire nation. And since all Arcady is considered a national security threat to Krakoa, Beast posits that he doesn't have any rights regarding how he's resurrected. This sounds a little bit like one of them slippery slopes. Um, It also sounds like a major plot point that should perhaps not be relegated to an info page. Which, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I assume a great portion of the readership either skims or skips altogether. So, we continue along here. Omega Red will be resurrected with the gimmicked-up sea synth. And since X-Force doesn't have to oblige by the polite laws of Krakoa, the Quiet Council nor the Five can do anything but cite their concerns. They still have to allow whatever they want to occur. In the memo, when faced with objections from the Five, Xavier simply states that, quote, X-Force has authorization to override standard protocols. Which, again, might be one of them, one of them exchanges that might be better to see, or you know, may, might be at least a little bit more impactful to see as an actual comics page rather than here in an info page. I don't know. And we did talk a little bit last episode about Xavier, uh, you know, passive-aggressively delegating. And it seems like he's passing the buck again here. He's like, yeah, let them do what they want. 
Back to comics. We shift over to a battleship in the Pacific. Now, it's full of folks who are tired of the mutants and their annoying moving island shenanigans. They are all quite anti-mutant at this point. Uh, The ship is attacked by, well, probably the next evolution of that uh, whatever it was that Krakoa purged earlier this issue. It looks kind of like a kraken, maybe? I don't know. We shift scenes over to the Savage Land. Beast arrives via a gateway to approach Peter with both his apology and offer to join X-Force in a support role. He's met at the gate by Kayla, who does not take kindly to this visit. She uses her water-siphoning powers to drain Hank's body of its moisture, which drops him like a rock. Peter shows up to settle all the tea kettles and hear Beast out. Beast apologizes and hands Peter a package of Krakoan paints that he had made for him. Colossus accepts Beast's apology, stating that while Beast made the wrong decision, he did so for the right reasons. Whatever that means. Uh, he, He then leaves before Beast can ask if he'll join the team. We wrap up over at a beach on Krakoa where Domino is playing with her dog, which I never even realized she had. We do, in fact, get an editor's note here referring us to X-Force number 5, which, truth be told, I can't remember a lick of. Um, At least this tells us that editors can include notes. Now, why this minor little dog blurb would get one and not the whole Vampire Nation arc? Uh, You got me. Now, Black Tom is buried in the sand, and he's having a grand old time in his beach day. Uh, He does mention that he can taste Domino's dog's excrement, and that the veg really seems to like it. Then... Oh, wait, are we... Oh, no, are we back in Empire? Because plant zombies overtake the beach. The poor dog looks to have been eaten, and Domino takes us home by proclaiming... Surf's up. She actually says surf's up. Okay. That's the end of X-Force. Next episode, I think we get back to business with Cable. The cover has him holding a baby, so maybe we're going to be getting back to that opening story arc. But uh, for now, let's talk about X-Force. Okay, so what's our main takeaway here? I, let me start by saying I didn't I didn't hate this issue. I, I kind of liked it, but it left me with a really bad taste in my mouth. It's one of those, you know? It's not so much a thinker insofar as I'm wondering what a character is thinking. It's more a thinker in that I'm wondering what the creators are thinking here, because I mean, Beast is just a murderer now? Is that is that the story we're telling? I, I mean, we've seen him act uh, immoral, irresponsible before. Um, we've seen him kill before in this very series. I mean, he... or maim or cripple, I suppose, with uh, the son of the president of Tierra Verde or whatever, where he injects him with whatever it was and causes a whole bunch of Tierra Verdans to to perish. Um, but, I mean, that seemed like more of a plan gone awry. And also, I mean, he was fighting zombie mutated plant things, so I don't want to say we can forgive it, but we can almost kind of massage it into making sense. And I want to say he might have killed one of those uh, wet work reavers that we saw very, very early in the series. I can't remember if it was him that did it or Wolverine that did it, but somebody did it. But here, I mean, this is just murder. Murder of, like, a captive who is bound <laughs> and helpless? 
I mean, if not for him being part of X-Force, he probably ought to be sharing whatever the hell kind of cell Sabretooth is, uh, has in, in the hole there. And, you know, speaking of Sabretooth, uh, how soon before he turns up as just like a random villain in any Marvel book simply because the editors don't communicate and there's like no check and balance system in place? I'm actually shocked that hasn't happened yet, at least as far as I know. If that has happened, please, actually, don't don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um... Back to Beast, though. I'm not sure how we can fix him after this. Like, is there any way to walk this behavior back? Where he's... He's just killing people. And this wasn't... I mean, this wasn't like in the heat of battle. This wasn't self-defense. This was... uh, Blowing a giant hole in, in a captive's chest while he was bound. Um... I mean, does anybody on staff care that they're doing, like, irreversible damage to these characters? It's a toughie, in it? I mean, he's not—he doesn't have berserker rage. He's not mind-controlled. He's not imbued with Dark Phoenix powers. He's just beast. And, he, and he's kind of a crazy asshole. I mean, it's not great. Uh— uh, on the other hand, though, maybe this is just more evidence of like some of the main theories we've discussed a lot on the show, that there is some sort of Krakoan influence taking over and massaging things into happening. Or maybe all these characters have been reading, like, uh, like Evan had suggested, maybe they're all clones. Maybe the originals are underground in stasis. Maybe they're in a no place that uh, only Mora knows about. I mean, who knows? But I feel like it's almost got to be something like that because this, I mean, this ain't cool. This really is not cool here. And, and I'd like, I'd hope, I mean, before when we talked about X-Force and we complained about how Beast was being portrayed, at least I could kind of frame it with saying something like, maybe this is leading to a redemption arc. Because, you know, I, I think we've seen, I mean, we're reading Juggernaut right now. He was a villain forever, and now he's, you know, rehabilitating. Magneto's on the Quiet Council. He's more heroic than villainous right now. Beast, it just seems different, you know? It seems very different now. After, After this issue in particular, it's like, even if we have a redemption arc, I mean, it's... I don't know. If it... Part of me... Really, really hates this. Part of me kind of gets it because we've talked we've talked a lot about the devaluing of life and death in these books here, where I mean, Beast ripping <laughs> Arcady's heart out with the you know TikTok um, carbonadium synthesizer, whereas before Hoxpox, this would have been you just killed somebody. Now it's like, well, you just took them off the board for a minute. Because they'll be brought back, altered, to make them more useful. And uh, and Beast also tells uh, the Five that uh, Omega Red is under no circumstances to know how he died. So, I mean, they're manipulating this and uh, changing this character to, to be a little bit more useful. I don't know if it's a sign that our characters are losing it or just another uh, you know another notch in the life and death doesn't matter sort of gimmick that's been going on ever since this thing started. I I know I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it. Um and I 
I'm not sure what kind of answer that we might get somewhere down the line will be satisfying enough to justify all of this way, way, way out of character behavior and all this needless death. Eh, Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Not much else happened in this issue. Um, We had the apology. We had uh, Peter uh, being kind of moody as, you know, which is justified. He was... He was treated as a traitor and a criminal without being a traitor nor criminal. Uh, we also had this big black mass that Krakoa popped out. Um, not sure exactly what it is. Um, it was almost like, you know, like, it, was it like a waste product? Like, was Krakoa purging waste? Was it a tumor or a cancer? I mean, it was black and just really, really uh, sinister looking. I I really don't know. Uh, I'd say that that's kind of an interesting tack to take because we've never really looked at Krakoa as... I mean, we know Krakoa is a living thing, right? But as a... I don't know, something that might have a digestive tract, uh, something that does change and is more amorphous than we may have thought of. I I think that's a neat little wrinkle to be getting here because... uh, Not only does it explain away inconsistencies in art, which, I mean, that's very, very handy when you have this many uh, creative teams involved in the project, but it also opens up opportunities for new things to be told. You know, a volcano might show up. You never know. Anything can happen on this island. And I think that's a really good way to introduce that sort of a topic. And that's, of course, assuming that it hasn't already been introduced and I just kind of missed it. (laughs) But, uh... I'm digging that, um, hating the beast thing. Uh, Didn't hate the issue, though. Didn't hate the issue. I feel like there was enough forward momentum. Um, Not quite the tonal shift that we've gotten in some of the other Reign of X books here, where it does feel like a new day. This feels like something that that we're just picking up from... uh, from the Dawn of X era, and that's fine. Not everything. I mean, Marauders was similar in in that regard as well. Not a bad thing, but just didn't feel quite as fresh as some of the other books. Not a bad thing, but perhaps not as strong as the uh, the other books around it. But uh, art was still top notch. Uh, Kasara is still killing it, so that's a good thing. And I think that's probably all I've got to say about the issue here. Uh, before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters. Uh, We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Juggernaut number two and three. He says, After X attends, we really couldn't have had a more different experience than reading Juggernaut two and three. This felt like such a step back in time. Fabian Niciesa builds and builds and builds a story, just like he did back in the 90s. He was always someone who wrote every project as though it could never end. Very Claremontian. That's totally true. Uh, Niciesa is... Definitely comfort food for me here. I love the way he he writes, and and you're right. It's every project could go on and on, and it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't feel like something's being padded. It has those pre decompression sensibilities where you do get a lot of action. Uh, sometimes, I mean, we we looked at issue four uh, the other day, and. There wasn't a whole lot to talk about in that issue, but I still felt satisfied in reading it. it there was enough, enough happened that it was a enjoyable and satisfying read. It was just one of those toughies to, you know, uh, analyze and synopsize. Well, synopsizing was actually quite easy, but 
Finding things to talk about that were not speculatory was difficult. And sometimes that happens. That's just a, a real throwback and uh, refreshing. And like you put it here, after reading something like X of Tens, which was 22 bloated issues, this was like a dream coming back to a uh, more uh, classic and traditional uh, comic storytelling. Damien continues, Ron Garney was also superb. He just brings the quality. I was a little disappointed with the coloring, though. Everything was a little too murky. And I also agree on that. Um, It almost reminds me of uh, my own time dabbling in in creating comics back when I was, you know, a a late teen and in my early 20s. And you'd use a... uh, I didn't have enough money to go out and buy fancy things, so I would use like a Sharpie to ink, which (laughs) is not ideal. And... uh, it does help in covering up really, really uh, bad pencil lines because most of my pencil lines were, in fact, quite bad. But uh, I totally understand the, uh, the the murk there because it did seem, and it it like doesn't make any sense to say this, but it seemed thick. <laughs> it, it, I know coloring doesn't make sense when described as thick, but it's the only word I can think of to to describe it. <laughs> Damien wraps up with. Overall, it's a great little series that gets the 90s nostalgia without looking or feeling like a period piece. 100%. 100%. 90s sensibilities, but with a current year sort of flair. This wasn't like Major X, you know? This wasn't a... This didn't go the love letter route, you know? This wasn't a... This wasn't a throwback in... Aesthetic style, just in storytelling style and in pacing, and it's just a really good time. If uh, if you all are not reading Juggernaut, uh, give it a shot. I think you uh, I think you will enjoy it. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts on those two issues of Juggernaut, Damien. Uh, next, our friend Evan is talking about X Factor number five. He says, this issue felt kind of uneven to me, but it also felt like one of those post-event breathers, too. It certainly set up plenty of plots and subplots going forward. Yeah, speaking of traditional, it's one of the things that surprised me the most about X-Factor number 5 was that it was like an old Quiet Claremont or Quiet Lobdell issue, where everybody's kind of not so much licking their wounds, but we're checking in with them. You know, we're checking in with these characters, we're seeing them interact with one another, we are getting... All these little, uh, all these little you know, subplot spurs are starting to show, and uh, I mean, uh, the sky's the limit for what we can do from here. Um, we don't know what subplots are going to be touched on first. We don't know what ones are going to build into something else. It's a really good time, and it, it definitely brought me back to you know post uh, post onslaught or post uh, executioner's song, post fatal attractions where. We did just get to spend a little bit of time with the characters while they reflected on what was going on and prepared to continue their stories. It was very, very good. Evan continues, Festival of Swords is an even more fitting name than X of Tens, and I believe Marvel should brand the trades that way. Could you imagine? (laughs) X-Men Festival of Swords Volume 1. I hope they do it. They won't, but I hope they do. We'll need to... uh, We'll need to have our dual hashtags of X of Tens and Festival of Swords. Uh, Evan continues. 
I forgot to go back and read X-Factor Volume 1, number 1. I've been sidetracked by Die, a comic I'm shocked I enjoy as much as I do, and reading about Captain America asking a 10-year-old for advice about whether he should go back to working for the government. It's research. So thank you for reminding me of my X-Lapsed homework assignment. And uh, I'm happy to report that Evan did write in his thoughts on X-Factor number 1, and uh, we'll talk about that next episode. I would power rank the number fives, Evan continues, but I agree with yours. Cable might have edged out X-Factor if it hadn't felt so uncable And it's true. Uh, the cable number five is the issue where he, Scott, and Gene go up to the S.W.O.R.D. Uh, satellite, and they free the Viscora with uh, f- inserting the S.W.O.R.D. into the orb, and then the Viscora show up, and... Yeah, it was not. It, it, it that was kind of a throwback in that it felt like a complete waste of time, like a lot of old cable books were. But uh, certainly not what we expect from uh, the Duggan Noto uh, cable, which is usually you know really, really, really good. But yeah, number five, not so great. Uh, Evan wraps up with, I almost forgot, as much as we've talked about it, was X-Force number 5 the first mention of the Crucible since X-Men number 7? That seems weird. And if Iska doesn't want the job, I figure Exodus could handle it. That is, that being Apocalypse's job of ritually murdering (laughs) the depowered mutant. Uh, I can imagine him spinning epic poetry about genetic supremacy for his campfire kids as he cleans the interior blood of a depowered mutant off his ceremonial sword. Yeah, I figure Exodus would be pretty good at that, and uh, if nothing else, it might uh, keep those campfire kids in line a little a little bit better as well. Uh, as for the question, I, I'm struggling to think if there has been another mention of the Crucible since... Since we saw the Crucible, I don't know that we have, which is strange because I feel like it's loomed so large ever since X-Men number 7. Maybe that's just the fact that that we've talked about it a whole lot on the show and we've been really reflecting on it and just really deeply discussing it. I don't know if X-Factor number 5 might have been the second mention of it because it certainly was front and center for uh, Wind Dancer's resurrection here, where she just assumes everybody went through the Crucible, and and how the Crucible news of the Crucible made it to Mojo World. It's I really don't know if anybody else knows if there has been any uh, Crucible discussion between X Men number seven and X Factor number five. Please write in and let me know because. I can't remember, but then again, I've, you know, this is episode 143. There's <laughs> been a lot of these, so I could have actually spent a, an hour talking about it, and I don't remember at the moment. So if you do, please let me know. But thank you so much for checking in there, Evan, and I really look forward to sharing your thoughts on X Factor Volume 1, number one, with the wonderful members of our X Lapsed, X Standard, X Family uh, next episode. But that's going to do it for the mailbag. If anybody out there would like to write in and uh, join the mailbag, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I guess I'm also on Facebook. It's just my name. So if that's where you hang out, you can find me there too. I just uh, I just don't go there all that often. Uh, uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Speaking of Facebook, you could find us there. Our little group is 90s X-Men. 
And for all your Chris and Reggie podcasting needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for letting me be a part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 144 of X-Labs. We have a gross of episodes, I I think, if I remember my math right. Uh, Today, we've got a book, or we've got an episode, I should say, that uh, we in the biz of uh, fake-ass comics historianism would uh, call a uh, snake-bit script. This is a script I tried to write for... Well, like a a day and a half now, and every single time I sat down to do it, something would come up and I wouldn't be able to attend to it. So this is a, well, this is a late night edition of the program, not that anybody would know. Uh, It's still releasing on time, but uh, it's it's gotten to the uh, 11th hour, so to speak. Uh, Now today, we're back to Excalibur here. This is going to be Excalibur, volume 4, number 16. Out of February 2021 cover date, the story's called They Keep Killing Braddocks. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaga. Letters, VCs Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price, $4. Uh, went on sale just a couple days before Christmas, December 23rd of 2020. I think that's Festivus, isn't it? Maybe this issue will be a uh, Festivus miracle. So, we open with Gambit preparing some breakfast for he and Rogue while they dutifully recap everything that happened during the recent Festival of Swords. You know, that whole thing happened in Otherworld, Betsy died, the Purple Captain Britain Corps came back, but their Betsy did not. And they're quite broken up about it. But we don't hang with them long, instead we shift scenes over to Jubilee and Shogo as they come across Richter trying to cast a spell in the soil. I'd say that's no euphemism, but I'm struggling to connect that with anything dirty. So, uh, 
If you have any suggestions, please feel free to let me know. Anyway, he's trying to contact A. Now, Jubilee hugs Richter and assures him that Apocalypse is gone. He seems even more desperate to connect with Apocalypse than, like, Rogue seemed over Betsy. It's kind of odd. From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We've got Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter. (sighs) Jamie Braddock? Uh, Is it too much to hope that he's just visiting Krakoa? Uh... Also, Captain Avalon, Megan Braddock, and Maggie Braddock. Well, that does not bode well for this being a story that'll remain in the uh, 616 universe, right? Oh, well, let's keep going. We join Rogue and Gambit at the Green Lagoon for some day drinking. Now they chat up Blob the barkeep, who thanks them for filling him in on what went down with Betsy because no one else thought to tell him. Not quite sure why Blob would feel he needed to know. Uh, I guess Krakoa is about community, so uh, stands to reason everybody should know everything. They're then joined by Richter and Jubilee, the latter of whom found a babysitter for her baby not-dragon so she could, uh, you know, tie one on. Now, Richter is reluctant to drink considering it's barely noon. Rogue uh, is a little, you know, insistent. She says that they're drinking for Betsy, to which he asks if they're also drinking for a... Rogue's like, oh hell no, which upsets Richter greatly, as A wanted to show them all the greater mysteries of mutant kind. Uh, you know, dude's really starting to talk like he is uh, all in, all bought in to being part of uh, Apocalypse's coven, or whatever it was there. Now Gambit, he's somewhat sympathetic to Richter, uh, either that or he's already drunk. Um, he tries telling him that they didn't outright lose A left as a result of Saturnine's game. This doesn't really help. Uh, All it does is make Richter wonder why A even started training them if he was just going to up and leave anyway without finishing it. Well, I mean, in fairness to Apocalypse, I don't think he knew that the interdimensional Witch Queen was going to enforce a trade between the two sides. Anywho, this aimless chat is interrupted by our crew being summoned to the Boneyard. You see, Gambit had hired X-Factor to check into Betsy's case. You know, to verify her death like they do, so that they can, you know, get into the business of resurrecting her. This takes us to an info page, and it's X-Factor's report on Betsy Britton. And the results are inconclusive. They can't confirm that Betsy is indeed dead due to all the weirdness surrounding her passing. And so, they cannot refer her to the Resurrection queue without risk of potential duplication. We jump back to comics, and our gang is at the Boneyard chatting up X-Factor. Rogue feels like they're just blowing them off, and even kinda gets in Northstar's face over how aloof he is over the situation. I mean, he's Northstar, right? When isn't he aloof? Eh? We do see Aurora in her X-Factor togs here. This might be the first time we actually see her in this costume. Uh, Anyway, Rachel butts in to settle some tea kettles here and reminds Rogue that X-Factor is only involved here to be investigators. They can't allow their feelings to come into play. She further tells Rogue that uh, regarding Betsy's death, there was no body, there was no injury outside the mystical shattering, just no conclusive evidence that she's actually dead. You know, none of the eyewitnesses to the event in question can even explain what it was that they saw in a conclusive way. And so, Rogue stomps out like a toddler throwing a tantrum. 
She claims to know what it's like being on, quote, the other side of the X-Men. Not sure exactly what that means, other than the obvious take that she's referring to her time as a villain, but I'm not sure how that applies here, and also, hasn't she heard there are no X-Men right now? I don't know. Rachel follows and suggests that the experts in Excalibur... Oh, damn it. Go back to Otherworld and check out the scene of the crime. And... Damn it, just one panel later, we're back in friggin' Otherworld. Are you serious? We can't even get one issue away from this friggin' place? Come on. Would you, would you guys be upset if I just stopped now? Uh, Alright, so we're in Avalon, at that weirdo Jamie Braddock's throne. Stood before him is the Braddock family, including their weird genius daughter Valeria, I, I, I mean Maggie. Rogue tells Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian that they're here to investigate Betsy's death in hopes that, you know, they'll be able to bring her back with a quickness. Now Maggie and her weird Uncle Jamie have some fun exchanges here, but if I'm being honest, I gotta say we've seen all this before anytime Valeria and Uncle Doom have a chat. Maggie then, uh, allows her mother Megan, who's going by Lady Gloriana, to share her current theory with the class. And so she says a whole lot of stuff, which basically comes down to checking out the scene of the crime. Which, well, Excalibur already planned to do before they even got here, so it's like we just wasted two pages. Whatever the case, Lady Glory... Ah, I'm not calling her that. Megan asks King Jamie the Weird for permission to accompany Rogue and the gang, and he doesn't care. He allows it. Now once they're gone, Maggie asks if she can go out to play, and Brian's cool with it. But he's got a concerned look on his face about Megan and Excalibur's current mission. That weirdo Jamie Braddock wonders aloud if Brian is just worried that his wife will run into his girlfriend, of course referencing Saturnine. Jamie then takes his leave, grabbing his snazzy Mr. Sinister cape and heading through the Krakoan gateway. It would seem that he has his own plan for how to get Betsy back. We next rejoin Excalibur plus Megan right below the Starlight Citadel, which was apparently the site of Betsy's shattering. I can't remember off the top of my head if that's actually where it happened, but... I mean, we've got like four editors on this book. I gotta assume they know what they're talking about. Now, Megan seems very excited to be here and even lets out a whoosh from the bottom of her dress. Uh, Not sure what that's all about, but it... Sure makes for an interesting visual. Richter then plops open the grimoire of A. Gambit wonders exactly what it is, suggesting it looks something like a cookbook. To which Richter says it basically is. We shift scenes to Bar Sinister, where King Jamie the Weird has decided to call in his favor. If you remember, back during X of Tens, Mr. Sinister promised Jamie a black market clone of his choosing. Well, I'm guessing he's about to make good on that promise. Uh, Jamie even returns Sinister's cape to him, claiming that he's a bit sick of it. Sinister agrees to terms and questions whether or not Jamie's accent is real because he swears it sounds fake. That's kind of sassy. It doesn't really register on the Hellion's sassometer, but it's a little sassy. I think we give him a three on the sassy scale for that. Next, back to Otherworld. The gang joins hands and prepares to cast a summoning spell. Jubilee even lets out a, quote, let our powers combine, which would be cute if it weren't so annoying. 
Then the plane is covered with emerald energy. Richter speaks the summoning spell and calls for Betsy Braddock to step forward. What they get is, well, a dozen or two purple Captain Britons, all Betsy's in a way, but not their Betsy. Now, Richter, while a bit disappointed, is also pleasantly surprised that they were able to complete a spell without a... The Purple Captain Britain Corps assures Excalibur that they will search the realms for the missing Betsy Prime, or Betsy 616, I suppose, and they leave. Next up, an info page, and it's from the grimoire of a Richter. Richter has kind of commandeered the book. It's a page from Apocalypse's book that has been annotated by Richter with what he learned in the casting. It's not a bad page, uh, just kind of boring for anyone who could, you know, give a damn about magic, like me. We wrap up with Betsy, maybe our Betsy, maybe not our Betsy, being awakened and told that she is Captain Britain. When she stirs, she finds herself in bed about to be served tea by Warren Worthington. In the background of this scene is a framed portrait of a purple-haired queen who will also be on the cover of the very next issue of Excalibur, but that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll see the return of the LGY numbers, the legacy numbering, to the X-Books, as we're going to be taking a look at the 350th issue of Wolverine. It's actually Wolverine Volume 7, Number 8, but there's also a great big 350 on it. Because why not? But before we get there, let's talk Excalibur. I want to say this up front. When I started reading this issue of Excalibur, I didn't think for even a second that I missed an issue. Which is like a first, so definite props for that. I also didn't think for a moment that we'd already be back in friggin' Otherworld, so whatever the opposite of props for that. Um, I don't want to say I disliked the issue, because up until the Otherworld stuff, I was quite enjoying it. It was very much in the mold of the, I mean, say it with me, the p- quiet post-crossover story, which, as I've said time and again, and I'm sure I will again and again, I'm a, I'm a sucker for those. I think they're a lot of fun. But then, Otherworld, where we continue to take our square peg X characters and jam them as hard as possible into a round-shaped magical hole. And I didn't expect that to sound... Quite that dirty, and I apologize. But I hope you can all see what I'm trying to say here. Um, the characters we have in this book, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches for uh, for an ex-fan of my vintage. Uh, these are some all-time great characters, some of my all-time favorites. But they absolutely don't need to be hanging out in Otherworld and dealing in magic. Uh, this feels like, like Civil War era. There's a story that this writer wants and needs to tell... And damn it, they're going to make the characters fit no matter what. To me, it's like just another case of senselessly breaking the toys for a, hopefully, short-term shift in the status quo. I don't understand why these characters would be so motivated to deal with all this magic stuff. And I mean, this is a question I've had from the very start. Uh, Let's talk about some of these magical characters here. Let's talk about Richter and his uh, relationship to Apocalypse. Um... Very culty. Uh, he is a very uh, devoted follower of A. And to be honest, I'm still not sure exactly where Apocalypse is. And I may be projecting here, but I feel like the writers aren't sure either. Sometimes, and I think, 
I think, you know, we get all these weird words, right? We, we got that info dump back in X-Men number 12 and then again in X-Men number 14 where we heard about Araco and Amenth and all these weird words here. And I feel like sometimes we've heard that he is living on Araco and other times he's living in Amenth. To which I'm like, isn't Araco now on Earth? Did I somehow completely misunderstand the entire trade at the end of X of Ten's destruction, is Araco on Earth? If not, then what in the hell did Apocalypse choose them as part of the trade for? Um, I mean, hopefully this will be cleared up before long, because it is one of the main takeaways from the 22-chapter excursion we just put ourselves through. You figure with 22 chapters, they'd be able to include all the information, maybe in one of those 22 chapters. Now, I know the issue of X-Men that we've got coming up in a couple of episodes. It sounds like it might be an epilogue to X attends here. The, the story itself is titled Sorted Out, which is an obvious play on words here. So hopefully Sorted Out will help us sort out all the fallout. <laughs> and we can figure out exactly where all these pieces landed here. Um... Because, guys, I'm tired of Otherworld. I'm so tired of Otherworld. I'm hoping... This is, uh, I'm hoping this is short-lived um, Let's talk the art The art in this book continues to impress I think the art is really, really good here um, Definitely doing uh, the heavy lifting Jamie Braddock is still quite entertaining I like seeing him with Sinister Even though uh, the Sinister in Excalibur Isn't quite up to the caliber Of uh, the Sinister in Hellions I, I think if... Uh, if we can get another Zeb Wells scene of uh, Sinister and uh, that weirdo Jamie having a chat, I think that could be a lot of fun. Where this was, you know, it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. It wasn't bad. Um, this is the first time I'm seeing uh, Megan and Brian's daughter, or at least realizing that I am uh, Maggie. Not sure what her deal is. She strikes me as a dollar store Valeria Richards. Um, just a uh, you know, young kid who's way, way, way too smart And uh, everybody in the room kind of defers to her I don't know why we needed two in the Marvel Universe Unless I'm completely missing the point of uh, what Maggie is going to be used for I really can't say But uh, overall, I'd say that uh, this is a uh, middling issue There were parts that I really enjoyed uh, And... The, the first half of the issue, I really, really dug it And it actually showed me that Teeny Howard can write these characters Very well when she's not shoehorning them into her overarching and very boring magic plot Unfortunately, I mean, we're still in Otherworld 16 issues of Otherworld Plus the entirety of X of Tens We need a break from this like really bad. We need to we need to shift directions, even if it's just for a little while. Just let's shake the stink of Otherworld off this book for just a minute, so we can maybe see these characters acting like characters that we know and love, rather than conduits for uh, to facilitate this magic story that I don't think anybody asked for. I know I didn't. Um, it really doesn't appear that there's any end in sight for this Otherworld nonsense So I guess all we can do Because this is a, you know, uh, an all-inclusive <laughs> X-Men project that we're working on here We're not going to drop the book 
But uh, we'll grin and bear it, and we'll just hope for the best. We'll take our victories uh, where where they are. And I don't remember who wrote in and said finding an enjoyment any finding any enjoyment in Excalibur is like a hard fought victory. And it's true. It's very very true. But that's all I got to say about this issue of Excalibur, the first chapter of the reign of reign of X era of Excalibur. Agree, disagree, I'd love to hear from you Please let me know your thoughts And uh, speaking of thoughts Let's hop into the mailbag here We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about the true flagship of this line Hellions, (laughs) number 7 He says One of the problems with reading digitally Is that the books run on Whenever you get to the end of the issue You're encouraged to read the next Every time I listen to a Hellions episode I immediately go and reread the issue In the light of what you had said I always enjoy it so much that I read the next issue, then the next, and by the end of it I've forgotten what happened in each issue and what I wanted to say in response to you. I either need to start keeping notes or just accept that Hellions is so great that I can't stop reading it. That's pretty good feedback for a comic. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better. Um, It's not often, and we've talked about um, this project and how sometimes it's an absolute joy, sometimes it's a little bit of a chore, and sometimes it's uh, an absolute slog. And I hope listening <laughs> isn't the same way, but uh, in the reading and in the analysis and in the writing, sometimes it's a real slog, and sometimes, like with Hellions, it's just, I want more. I really, really want more, and it's hard to stop. Especially when I have, you know, I'm looking at my short box, and I'll have like two or three Hellions in a row, and it's hard to... It's hard to, to stop myself from going on It doesn't happen often where something like that occurs But uh, yeah, Hellions, it's it's very, 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 very good book I, I mean, you can check this box off your X-lapsed bingo If you're not reading Hellions, you should be reading Hellions Because it is that damn good And uh, I do want to say to Damien, I appreciate so much that uh, you revisit the issues after listening to the show That's... Absolutely amazing, and I can't tell you how much that means to me, so thank you. Uh, Damien continues, This series could be written for me. My first X-book was X-Factor number 9, which featured Cameron Hodge being sinister and the start of the Mutant Massacre. My first X-Men was the following month, with the first appearance of the Marauders. I bought the first appearance of Mr. Sinister, Nanny, and the Orphan Maker off the stands. Every single element runs my nostalgia spot. And, I mean, how cool is that? How cool is that? That uh, this book, (laughs) this weird second-string book, feels so traditional that, you know, people who were buying these books off the racks as they were coming out can feel like this is being, this is, you know, a throwback. This is for them. And, of course, I didn't come in until a couple years after this, so I experienced all these things after the fact, but... I am also very nostalgic for uh, this era of books here. Uh, X Factor was a huge part of my X fan upbringing, the early, you know, original five issues, and I totally agree. I mean, Cameron Hodge. I talked about it um, when we when we saw him in the Hellions here. It's I always kind of inflated his importance because I had his first appearance, <laughs> and uh, I mean that's just the silly things that kids do, you know. If it if you open up the Wizard magazine and you see, like, first appearance of somebody, like that suddenly makes it that much more important. So that is definitely awesome, and it was very, very cool to see him here. Um, Damien continues. 
Talking of reading along, I'm falling a little behind, but I noticed that near future episodes are covering Sword Number 1 and Juggernaut Number 4, which are not yet on Marvel Unlimited. I like to read the books before I listen to you, so I've decided to skip the ones I haven't read so I can get to the books that I can't wait for your response to, like Marauders Number 16, and then go back again to see if to when they're uploaded to Unlimited. That means my comments will be time-traveling a bit, but hopefully it'll mean I'll get closer to being caught up with you. And again, I can't tell you how much it means to me that we have these communications and discussions here. It really means the world to me that you you, you write in, you all write in. I, I it, It's really hard for me to even put into words here. So time-traveling comments, perfectly fine. <laughs> they will definitely be covered and be just as appreciated as any of the comments here. Uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until I manage to get into the resurrection queue just for a new set of knees. <laughs> Make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts on that issue, Damien. Hellions, I mean, I, again, if anybody's listening who isn't reading Hellions, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just such a good book. It is uh, definitely the highlight for me. I mean, uh, Marauders is up there. Uh, Hellions, uh, Hellions and Marauders, the two books I would have never had any expectations for in this entire project. And boy, if I haven't been blown away. I mean, it's amazing stuff. But thank you so much again, Damien. Next, we got Jesse talking about the latest issue of New Mutants and some more things here. He says, New Mutants is finally back. I really enjoyed this issue, especially the points that Gabby brought up about clones that no one wanted to give a good answer to. The only thing I'm not a huge fan of is... Let's see here. He gave me a pronunciation guide for uh, the, the character I've been calling Anol. It's actually Anole. Which, uh, thank you. I, I, <laughs> I never get these names right. So, uh, Jesse is not a fan of Anole being shown as an inexperienced mutant when he has been an X-Man and has years of experience. If anything, we need a story of Anole dealing with the death of Rockslide. You rarely saw one without the other, and I'm not sure if we've seen how Anole is dealing with losing his best friend. Anole just goes to work at the bar and doesn't think of it, I guess. I would love to see him sitting on the X of Swords playset talking with his old friend, and then have the new Rockslide come up to him and just sit next to him. Not a word said. End of issue. Yes, uh, you know, that's that's funny you say that, because um, Anole's been around for probably near 20 years now. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I, uh, why I listed all the characters on those uh, squads in the uh, in the wild hunter whatever whatever that uh, exercise that the new mutants were doing with the kids here so i mean we had characters like uh, like petra from the dangerous uh, the deadly genesis group which i suppose she probably doesn't have a whole lot of field experience but still she's uh, she should be a, quite a bit older than some of these characters uh, at least you know a contemporary with like storm so it certainly seemed weird to see her there. Also, Anole, he's been around for, like you mentioned, he's been an X-Man before. He's been around for a very long time. It's odd that they would, uh, it just feels like the, some of the writers don't know uh, their X-history here, and they just see, I mean, some of the things here, this goes back to the Morrison run, where they'd have like a neat design for a character, right? They'd find like an Anole, you know? He's like this weird little lizard guy. You have a rock slide who's got a cool look. Um, and they would just be in the background. And it felt like all they were were wallpaper. 
And I think a lot of our uh, creators these days don't see them as anything but. Regardless if there's been any sort of development or maturation of their character, it's just, oh, these are the ones in the background, so they must just be students, inexperienced, kids, they need training. And so Anole's there, and he's getting, you know, he's getting beaten up by Rain Kid or Rain Boy or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, it does seem very, very strange. And also, the fact that he hasn't commented on Rockslide is very strange as well. I'm remembering the uh, Free Comic Book Day issue that we discussed right before Exitens here, where Rockslide wasn't. On the uh, on that card, it was Glob Herman on the card. So I wonder. I feel like those are two characters who played background so often that uh, writers conflate them. You know, it's like oh, well, we got. It's like they project one onto the other. So yeah, we got this big bulky guy who sometimes hangs around with the lizard boy. So yeah, uh, same character, right? But uh, I do wonder if we'll ever get anything out of NLA or any of the, you know, Academy X era young mutants to talk about Rockslide. All we've seen so far is, you know, Polaris kind of lost her mind over it for a minute. But I don't know. I wonder if there's anything planned for Rockslide here. I'm not confident that we'll see him again anytime soon, so hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully that we'll see him again sometime soon and maybe get a little bit of an update on... Uh, what it means to be in, you know, Otherworld Resurrectee, I guess. Um, now going to Gabby. Oof. Now that was a really, really strong scene and an excellent question. And that's a question that we've been asking on the show for quite a while now. Uh, ever since, you know, Madeline Pryor was told, nah, you ain't coming back. You know, this is a great question and I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm confident that this will be addressed pretty soon here. It almost seems like they're, they're painting a target on poor Scout where uh, something will come up. I, I Again, I could be completely wrong, but that's just what it looked like to me. I, I thought it was great. I loved the way the New Mutants handled the question by not handling the question because they don't know. They know just about as much as anybody does. It's They're being put in a position of authority over the, uh, you know, the Academos habitat or whatever, but they don't know Jack and... Uh, you know they they don't know they can't they can't they can't assuage anybody's concerns especially not a clone who is very very worried that she is a, a lesser than character who won't be brought back at a, at the risk of duplication so looking forward to that looking forward to seeing how that plays out here now Jesse continues I know you're not a huge fan of X-Men in space but I love them on cosmic adventures the classic story that no one ever talks about is how the of, of how the X-Men faced the Brood for the first time. That's how I fell in love with the X-Men and Aliens. I love that story in early Claremont. Uh, the New Mutants at the beginning of Hoxpox was a blast. I enjoyed the X-Men title for the first time since Hoxpox started in those two issues of how Brew learned to make omelets. I don't want Outer Space Men every year, but I do enjoy them. <laughs> that brew issue, oh, the the two part brew issue with the egg. Oh boy, I I almost like noped out. <laughs> that was the first. Well, actually, I can't say it was the first time, but it was uh one of the biggest times where I was like, I can't do this anymore. It was that was one of those chore episodes I was talking about just a little bit ago. 
I don't know what it is about me. I never, I've never been able to glom on to uh, the X-Men in space. I think the closest I ever got was, I mean, outside of the original Dark Phoenix, which was like a novelty. But uh, I didn't hate The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire by Ed Brubaker, even though it lasted like 17 years to tell the story. I kind of got into it, which was a surprise to me. And it's like I always want to enjoy them. Because, I mean, why wouldn't I want to enjoy them? But I, anytime I see the X-Men go to space, I I want to like it. I remember right before the trial of Gambit, uh, they went out to space. Um, it was actually, we talked about the lead-in to that during Merry X-Laps, where we talked about the second Rockefeller Center Uncanny X-Men issue, where Gladiator comes and he fights Cannonball over New York, and uh, then he sends them to the Shi'ar to do some stuff. And I wanted to enjoy that story so much. And I didn't. I just did not care for it at all. It's it's always a hard sell for me. No matter what the crew, uh, anytime the Teen Titans go to Starfire's planet, and, and you know, and Starfire is you know going to be married again to somebody, I hate those stories. I I just can't. I just can't do it. <laughs> I just like my. Uh, I, I I like my you know. I don't want to say street level, but I like my Earth-based stuff. Uh, Green Lantern. Love Green Lantern. Loved it when he was on Earth. When he goes into space, I'm asleep. <laughs> you know, it's just... I don't know. Maybe it's I feel like there are no limits to a space story. You could do whatever you want with it. You don't need to be careful. You don't need to really... There are no rules that apply. It's just anything goes, and I just don't care for it. Jesse continues... You'd mentioned that you're not sure when the Kree and Skrull joined into one empire. It happens in Empire, when Hulkling, son of the Kree Captain Marvel, and the Skrull Princess Anel became the prophesied ruler of the two species. Well, that is helpful, and it uh, saves me from having to read any more Empire, so thank you so much. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, I'm sorry if this was so jumbled. I've been wanting to write in for weeks and finally have a small break tonight from work and family life. I still love the show. Keep it up. And until Cyclops' catchphrase is actually, that's it. Make my next laps. <laughs> and uh, for folks who don't know what that's a reference to, um, I was recently on the Wizards uh, podcast where we talked about the X-Men's 30th anniversary. And the inside back cover of that issue had a uh, had an advertisement for... A collectible watch, uh, Character Time, made these watches. They were limited to X, X hundred or X thousand uh, copies of them, or I guess watches, I suppose. And there's one with uh, that, that I own, actually. My brother-in-law bought it for me for Christmas a few years ago, knowing that I'm a big Cyclops fan, and it has Cyclops. It's from, you know, I actually found the issue it was in. It was in a uh, Neil Adams issue, um, probably... In the 50s of the, you know, original run of X-Men And it's Cyclops And his uh, his visor lights up if you push the button on the side of it uh, My batteries are dead, so I haven't been able to do it But uh, he's got his fist balled up and he's saying That's it I mean, it seems like the most random thing in the world to put on a watch head, watch face But uh, yeah, it's Cyclops with a fist balled up in a, in a speech balloon saying That's it and uh, on the Wizards podcast, we joked that that was Cyclops' uh, Cyclops, you know, famous catchphrase. <laughs> That's it. 
I'll have to try to remember to share a picture of that somewhere on uh, one of the socials. <laughs> I'll probably forget, but hopefully I, I won't. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Jesse. And, and never worry about writing in late. I, I know life happens. Life gets in the way. Life is uh, life is real. And this is uh, this is just a silly comic book show. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. I'm I'm so happy that you're still uh, you're still digging the program here. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a piece from our friend Evan, who is talking about. X-Factor, Volume 1, Number 1, which I had asked him to read because uh, this was right after we wrapped up... Um, oh, this was actually the penultimate episode of X-Lapsedination, which was the cable, epilo- uh, the cable eulogy issue. Here was two stories. This was X-Men The Exterminated. The first half of the book was about Hope and Jean... Going to Cable's old safe houses The second half was a story narrated by Cable About the time where he realized that his father Scott Summers was going to be the perfect dad And and devoted, loving husband Which doesn't really jive with how the story actually went Uh, So uh, Evan had commented And I had asked him to check out that first issue of X-Factor To see Cyclops doing what he did So Evan says just read the original X-Factor number one and got to see Cyclops deserting his family in real time instead of imagining how it might have gone. It was weird. The fight between him and Madeline at the beginning of the issue was conveniently timed. Maybe I could earn a retroactive no prize by suggesting that his restlessness was a result of Jean's reawakening and their psychic connection. The conflicting feelings Scott has after learning of Jean's return are understandable. I can even see why he would resist telling her about Maddie, But did he wander aimlessly for two weeks without calling home? This makes me wonder even more about that Claremont story in X-Men The Exterminated. Why did Corsair need to show up and give Scott that fatherly intervention? It seems like Scott had more going on, there and in X-Factor No. 1, than simply being restless or pining for an old flame. He may have had a sort of breakdown. Very possible, huh? It's funny because, uh, and I mentioned this during that issue, that episode of X Lapsedination, there was the famous issue, Uncanny X Men 201, where Storm and Cyclops have their duel to see who can lead the X Men, and then Scott decides to retire, right? Then there's X Factor number one, where Scott is taken out of retirement, and I'd always assumed that there was like a couple of years between those two issues, and there wasn't. There was one month. They were one month apart for cover dates, which blew my mind when I actually came to that realization. Because in reading this Claremont story where Corsair, as Evan puts it here, has an intervention with his son here and Cyclops learns to be the doting husband and father, I assume we had a lot of space to squeeze that story in. Because even in that issue, or in that story, uh, Cyclops and Madeline were at odds, and Scott was very restless. You know, they were sleeping in separate beds, and it seemed like their marriage was just uh, uh, not not on the right path. And so I, being the fake-ass comics historian that I am, I decided to see if I could fit this story in anywhere, and uh, lo and behold, (laughs) between his retirement and return was like four weeks in real time. <laughs> so maybe, what, 20 minutes in comics time, in Marvel's sliding time scale? You just can't fit this story in here. It's it's very, very weird. And uh, he does act... It's not a good look. 
the way Scott uh, behaves in X Factor number one and in the entire like first dozen issues or so of X Factor because it's uh, it it shows him as anything but a devoted husband and father. Evan continues. On the surface, yes, Cyclops seems like a completely selfish jerk, and Bobby and Hank aren't much better, giving Scott a pep talk and apparently forgetting as well that he has a family. I'll blame it more on the story being about the formation of a super team than a mediation on marriage and personal responsibility. Yeah, that's probably the best way to do it, huh? Because, uh, yeah, he was being rooted on, basically, by uh, Beast and uh, Iceman. It's uh, not a good look. Not a good look here. It's it's as though uh, Maddie and Nathan are just an inconvenience. And uh, out of sight, out of mind. And uh, hey, you know you're a, you're a hero again, and we're gonna you're gonna be with your uh, you know, the love of your life here. It's weird, very weird. Now Evan wraps up with: Aside from the fun of revisiting the era of my earliest comics collecting, I plan to read more just to watch the horrific dumpster fire that is Cyclops's personal life. <laughs> well, I hope you do. And I hope you uh, you keep us uh, abreast of your thoughts and uh, takeaways from Cyclops's weird year or so of uh, avoiding his wife, <laughs> and then uh, finding out what he thinks he found out about her, and then finding out that he didn't find out anything about her, and then uh, finding out about uh, well, you'll get there. You'll get there when you get there. But thank you so much for uh, for checking in there, and thank you for checking out X Factor Number One. I think we can call that X-Lapsed Extra Credit, and uh, it really, really means a lot to me that you did that. Anybody else who wants to read uh, X-Factor number one and share your thoughts, please, please feel free to do so. But uh, that's where we're going to put a pin in the mailbag for today, and uh, the episode overall, I suppose. Why not? Now, if anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag, please feel free to write in. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie radio needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Now, before I finally stop Yammer, and I do want to, uh, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to ask a favor. Now, if you enjoy this program, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, please... Tell a friend, spread the word, help me get the word out there that this show exists, and uh, if you like it, hey, it's even better. So if you got any uh, pals out there who are X-Men fans, or perhaps even X-Lapsed themselves, please let them know that uh, this show exists. <laughs> I'd very, very much appreciate it. So I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today and allowing me to be part of your day. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 153 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to be taking a look at the next issue of X-Force. Uh, we're going to hop right on in. This is X-Force, volume 6, number 16, which had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called Into the Deep, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale January 20 of 2021. Now we open with Beast and Cecilia Reyes examining one of those zombified sailors who washed up on the Krakoan shores at the end of last issue. So I guess we're not going to get the fight scene that went down between them and Domino and Tom then. I guess that's fair enough. I guess we don't need to waste a page or two with the SmackDown here. Uh, let's just hope that we don't get an extra couple of info pages to make up for it. Now, Cecilia, you know, anybody remember her code name? I, I don't even know if it ever made it into the actual books. Uh, it might have just been for promotional material or maybe previews catalogs. But I remember she had one. I just don't remember what it was off the top of my head. And unfortunately, a whole lot of my ex-ephemera is still at the other house, so I uh, don't have an avenue to uh, check that out. So if anybody remembers, please let me know. Anyway, Cecilia has the zombie wrapped up in one of her force fields to keep it from catching her off guard. You know, like what happened with the Russian nesters a few issues back that wound up actually killing Cecilia and... uh, was uh, shrugged off by uh, Sage and Beast, of course. Um, From here, it's a double-page spread of roll call and cred. The characters we'll be focusing on today are Beast, Cecilia Reyes, Domino, Black Tom Cassidy, Phoebe Cuckoo, Wolverine Forge, and, huh, Kid Omega. Hmm, okay. Well, we check out the beach where Dom and Tom are conducting a cleanup. Now, Domino doesn't seem all that torn up that her foster pup was just eaten at the end of last issue. Uh, She uses that gross Krakoa cannon arm that she's got to burn up a bunch of the remaining zombies. She and Tom discuss what might have caused this, to which Domino suggests that it might have been an infection of Krakoa itself. We jump back to the lab, and it looks like whatever it was that Krakoa purged last issue was exactly what we theorized it just might be. A tumor. At least that's what the uh, big-brained beast is suggesting, and, uh, I mean, I I ain't about to argue with him. Hank's mind begins to spin at the possibilities here. He tries to figure out ways they might use this to their advantage, like almost uh, weaponizing this uh, tumor. Now, Reyes ain't too keen on none of that, and suggests that Hank maybe keep it in his pants for now. Beast takes a peep through his microscope at a sample of the tissue, and it actually winds up crawling up the lenses of the microscope, smashes through, and breaks his glasses in the process. To which Dr. Reyes is all, see? She then suggests that Beast uh, maybe get an X-Force team out into the drink to perform some surgery. Next up, an info page, and it's Sage's intelligence report re the tumor. Now, we have Black Tom and Cypher. They both use their, you know, respective methods to communicate with Krakoa about this metastatic infection. After which, Krakoa claims no knowledge. 
So, huh, I wonder if the thousands upon thousands of mutants currently living here might have something to do with it. I wonder. Back to comics, and we have Wolverine, Forge, and the no-longer-dead Quentin Quire preparing to dive into this trench in order to operate. And I gotta say, I really thought Quentin's body was in Russia with Mikhail right now. And if that's the case, you gotta assume that X-Factor wouldn't have been able to, you know, give the thumbs up and verify his death. Unless, of course, we're working under the uh, idea that X-Force is above all of that sort of protocol. Or maybe I'm even less observant than I had always assumed I was, and uh, this was made clear before. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, Forge, he's here, he's still acting like a chucklehead, and he proudly shows off his underwater flamethrower. Now, before they can dive, Phoebe Cuckoo arrives to give old QQ a smooch and implore him not to die again. Well, I guess Quentin does remember that they had a relationship then. Uh, it seemed like he, you know, last died like moments after they declared that, but uh, I-, I guess she wouldn't have forgotten, so I guess it's all good. Finally, Forge, Quentin, and Logan dive. Now, Wolverine's adamantium-laced bones cause him to be, you know, like really, really heavy, so he sinks like a stone really, really quick. He makes contact with the bottom at 8,600 meters. Now, there he, he discovers the remains of the USS Siege, and it's full of dead bodies, and uh, they are rendered horrifically. <laughs> they are very unpleasant to look at, but very, very well done. Now, Logan keeps walking until he comes upon the entrance to the trench, which takes it even deeper. Of course, Forge can't help but to give him the old Nietzsche line about uh, looking into the abyss, because, uh, well, it's easy, and of course he does. Wolverine is then attacked by a zombie, who he makes short work of before tossing it into the trench. And we can see a whole lot of tentacles emerging from the depths, but then suddenly Wolverine finds himself stood before a giant eye. And I think we're supposed to be getting Lovecraftian horror vibes here, or at least that's what I'm getting. Uh, The thing with the eye then swims away, leaving Wolverine very, very shaken. He tells Forge that he saw a god. Now, Forge shakes this off, suggesting that uh, Wolverine just needs his oxygen adjusted, which, I mean, in the real world would be the correct response, but we got to remember, this is the fantastical Marvel Universe where this kind of stuff happens all the friggin' time. So, eh, I don't know. Now, Quentin, he's then nabbed by a tentacle, but it doesn't seem to belong to the eye horror that Wolverine just saw. This looks more like a mutated hammerhead shark. QQ blasts it through the dome while waxing poetic about Krakoa and finally having something to live for. I mean, he, he did used to date Gwenpool. What is she? Chopped liver? Eh? Mm. Now, when speaking of Krakoa, he comments that the mutants just trust it to be there for them, without thinking about anything that might lurk below the surface. Now, as he puts it, quote, everybody's got something rotten inside them. And that might just be our main takeaway for the issue. Uh, You know, these are the things that uh, we and the characters aren't supposed to be thinking about, at least not openly. Anyway, he ponders this, and he finds himself surrounded by some nasty, mutated sea beasts. Wolverine and Forge dive in to help fight him off, but it looks as though this might just be the end for the three of them. These beasties just keep on coming. When all appears to be lost, however, they find themselves aided by... Any guesses? I mean, we're very deep underwater, so I mean, it's a short list of possibilities. 
All right, it's Namor. It's Namor. Of course it's Namor. Now, Namor lambasts the mutants for being kind of worthless and delivers some commentary about the nature of their relationship with Krakoa. He compares the parasitic infection that Krakoa purged to the mutants themselves. Now, we know that Krakoa is like an energy sucker, an energy vampire of sorts, right? Which makes it kind of a parasite. But Namor posits that it's a two-way street with the mutants making their home on it. They are also parasitic toward Krakoa. He also questions Xavier's entire mission statement for this era as being uh, maybe less than genuine. And, I mean, this isn't the first time he's voicing that take either. It's a really good observation, and it might just be our second big takeaway of this issue. The Submariner then sends the mutants home, but dismisses them, really, while he deals with the situation all by his lonesome. Then an info page. It's a Wolverine's poetry page here. Uh, well, okay, not really, but it's Logan talking about how insignificant he felt when stood before that great big Lovecraftian Ihara, and he vows to kill it. And from here, it would appear that we've uh, run out of pages, so uh, that's where the story ends. Kind of abrupt, but uh, okay, we'll take it. Uh, next episode, we're back in the wild with New Mutants number 15, but, uh, well, let's talk about X-Force. This was a pretty good issue. I was not expecting to enjoy this one so much. Um, I know we're not supposed to judge books by their cover, but uh, just thinking about Wolverine fighting a uh, underwater creature uh, <laughs> really didn't uh, spark a whole lot of confidence in me here, but this was a... Uh, I mean, no pun intended, it was a much deeper issue than uh, I came into this expecting. So let's talk about our takeaways here. Um, Main takeaway, I feel, are uh, Quentin's thoughts here. And his thoughts were that everybody has something rotten hidden inside them. And I mean, I I mention that because this just goes right into like our wheelhouse for theories. Uh, We've long theorized about the potential rottenness just under the surface of Krakoa. In a lot, a lot of different ways here, even in the most benign of scenes here, there's an underlying, like, sinisterness to uh, a lot of these stories. Even going back to the very first issue of X-Men, you know, post-Hoxpox uh, here, we had that, like, weird, like, almost Pleasantville summer's dinner, right? It was just, everything looked kind of okay, and we had our point-of-view character there in Corsair, if you remember. And he is, you know, kind of weirded out, just like we are. And he goes to mention something, and he's kind of shut down. And he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) He just, he knows something's weird there. And we know something's weird there. There's something rotten just below the surface. And it's, I love that we're actually getting it verbalized here. First, because it kind of validates what we all thought we saw. And second, because it's a pretty good indication that uh, this is something that will be addressed and perhaps even dealt with uh, not too far off into the future. So I like that. Um, now, Quentin was talking about, before he made that comment, how the mutants are just trusting Krakoa to kind of just be there for them. And trust is another, like, really, really big thing for this era. Blind trust in particular, because... Uh, we're not asking questions. I mean, we are. You know, the readers and the uh, fake-ass analysts are asking these questions, but it's not really coming up all that often in the books here. So, I mean, let's consider some stuff here. The Quiet Council are kind of... I mean, they are the law. They're the government here. The 
citizens, I guess, the civilians of Krakoa, they just trust that they have their best interests at heart here. And, I mean, let's look through a few of these members. we got Apocalypse, who started a war with Otherworld, <laughs> you know, behind the back of even the Quiet Council. How do you trust someone like that? Uh, I mean, how about Mr. Sinister? We know more about Mr. Sinister than a lot of the characters do, but... Uh, not a lot of trust there either. There shouldn't be. Uh, Exodus is out there indoctrinating children. I mean, he's not exactly lying to them, but he is uh, he is uh, making them, well, for lack of a better term, uh, maybe militant. He's really, really forming, uh, helping them form their opinions in a very extreme sort of way. Uh, we have an entire quarter of the Quiet Council devoted to the Hellfire Club, or the Hellfire um, Trading Company, and... Yeah, I mean, even the most trustworthy member of that little crew, uh, Kitty Pride, uh, I don't know that we can trust her anymore. It's, it's weird. Um, look at things like one of our favorite subjects, the Crucible. They just trust that this is the way things are supposed to be because they were told that's the way things are supposed to be. Uh, the Festival of Swords, heading off into the Great Unknown, literally, um, out of a weird prophecy. That they just blindly trusted X-Force being the mutant CIA above the law They don't have to answer to, apparently, they don't have to answer to anybody They don't have to answer to the council, they don't have to answer to the five They don't have to answer to a soul here So they're working, they're basically setting up Krakoa's best interests In in, in the way they see fit uh, the Resurrection Protocols, another thing that we are just being told to trust, and the characters are as well. And Quentin Quire, being someone who has been through the Resurrection Protocols, what, a dozen times to this point? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's trustworthy for some, but uh, as we know from our other recent issue of New Mutants, Scout ain't too sure, Madeline Pryor ain't too sure, uh, but you know, she's not around to ask those questions anymore. I really like the idea that we're finally getting some sort of uh, skepticism, I guess. Um, and I think we're going to see more of this during, throughout the, uh, the Reign of X um, era, or I guess quarter or third. I don't know how long Hickman's run's going, but uh, I've heard that this is either the second quarter or the second third of it. So I guess we'll, uh, I guess maybe sales will dictate uh, how long it goes, but uh Let's, uh, let's go to the other takeaway we have here, Namor's take. Now, he suggests that the mutants are the parasite in the uh, Krakoan relationship here. And there is a bit to support that. And, I mean, a lot of it goes back to uh, what Quentin said about how the mutants just trust Krakoa to be there for them. And it's pr- Krakoa is providing. Krakoa is giving life. And I think, I think maybe it was Beast in this issue who made a comment saying, like, Krakoa gives and take, takes away. And we do know that uh, Krakoa is, you know, an energy-siphoning um, entity. So it's an interesting uh, take here that uh, one that's always been considered parasitic is being, you know, the uh, the victim of parasites in the in the mutants here, who really just seem to be uh, in a fool's paradise in a way. Uh, now, Namor also. Mentioned uh, that Xavier's plans are maybe not genuine Maybe there's a little bit of nefariousness to them uh, More so than good 
And that's kind of why he refused to join up back in the first place during um, one of the latter issues of Hoxpox, where Xavier went to visit him, and he's just like, "Yeah, you know, get out of here. I'm not. I'm not doing that." And it's cool that his opinion hasn't changed on the matter. And uh, I wonder how much of that might have to do with the fact that he's not on Krakoa. You know, we've talked about the uh, the Krakoa effect in you know controlling or modifying behaviors, and since Namor never went. Well, he still uh, he still has the same opinions, and uh, they are still a bit contentious toward uh, the Krakoan populace, I suppose. Uh, let's talk about the art. The art was fantastic. Um, the underwater scenes um, actually made me a little bit uncomfortable. They they were the same. They were at the same time they were way too vast, but they were also claustrophobic. You know, it was excellently done. Um, the coloring, I gotta mention the coloring here because the use of light to kind of uh, illuminate the uh, the under the helmet, uh, uh, Wolverine and Forge and, and Quentin's helmets that they were wearing underwater here, there was like an illumination on their faces, which was really, really beautiful. Just, uh, I mean, a top-tier uh, presentation here with the art. Uh, you know, kudos to everybody involved because it's it was gorgeous. Speaking of which, Wolverine sees a god, which was very, very well done, very, very well drawn. But as a story beat, well, here, here's my problem. I mentioned earlier, like, in the real world, you know, things would be a bigger deal, like, like Forge telling him to adjust his oxygen. Here, in the real world, seeing something like this would have been a huge deal. I mean, but we got to think, in the Avengers book right now, Wolverine is dealing with phoenix stuff so to 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 take at face value that this eye beast that he saw was the only thing that he's ever seen that's made him feel insignificant before is kind of a reach i mean just jumping back to the festival of swords there for a minute he fought the summoner on blight spoke which i mean that's a trip and a half that has to make you feel like you don't really exist right <laughs> i mean that was just upside down and inside out um so i know what they were going for here and in some regard it worked but in another where we actually have this story existing as a part of this fantastical shared universe it really doesn't amount to a whole lot um seeing a god when you spend a lot of your time working shoulder to shoulder with literal gods is, I don't know, it just doesn't seem quite that earth-shaking or spirit-shaking, I should say. Uh, Forge, he's still a douche. <laughs> I don't know why he's been given this personality. Uh, I don't like it. He just comes across like the, the frattest of the frat boys here. He's just very, very douchey. Um, let's go to Beast. We'll wrap up talking about Beast here. Uh, the thought... I mean, he got giddy when he saw this uh, tumor or uh, infection here, and he immediately thought of ways that they could use it to their benefit, i.e. weaponizing it. I mean, this is kind of like a... Maybe there's like a 6 or a 7 on the current year Hank McCoy scale of, of Mad Science... But uh, I can't say that it doesn't fit the current take on him. Um, and also, I mean, he's a curious guy. This is one act of uh, badness from Hank McCoy that I can almost excuse because 
he's always been presented as a curious guy and a, a very analytical guy and a guy who was who was playing with science. I mean, that's how he became, you know, the the bouncing blue or initially gray beast in the first place here by playing with chemicals and playing with science. And uh, well, I don't think he's going to eat this tumor like he drank the uh, the serum that gave him the fur, but. I do appreciate him being presented as a scientifically curious uh, fellow, which it rings true to me. And I got to admit to being kind of tickled when the uh, the slime came up the uh, microscope and bro- broke through, and, and Hank's response was, "Oh dear." I, I thought that was uh, that was very very fitting. So uh, I'll give Beast a pass for this issue here. But overall. Had a heck of a good time with this one. This was really, really good stuff. Gave us a lot to think about, a lot to consider, and hopefully planted some seeds that are going to uh, to sprout very, very soon because this was very, very well done. So kudos to everybody involved. Had a good time with this one. I hope you did as well. And that will do it for our discussion of this issue. But before we jam out, let's hop into the mailbag. Now, we got two letters today, both about... Generation X Volume 2, Number 2, which is uh, really, really cool to see. We're going to kick things off with Jesse, who says, Generation X Number 2 is like Issue 1. Not as horrible as I remembered, but still not good. Again, we get all the background cameos that I like. If anything, it answers the question of whatever happened to Shark Girl. Oh, she's a background character in Generation X. I guess that's okay. Morph in hindsight, I had to look up these names again, are just forgettable. But not forgettable like Forget-Me-Not, who I love. Oh, Forget-Me-Not is so much fun, isn't he? (laughs) Uh, A week ago, you could have asked me who these two perfectly human-looking, boring guys were from Generation X Volume 2, and all I could tell you is that one had white hair and the other changed into someone he was near. These two are prime candidates for the leading spots in Fallen Angels Volume 3, Still Falling. At no point does the writer make me feel connected to to these two. So far, the other kids, minus Kid Omega, are flat characters that add nothing to the story. It's sad because we had two issues into this volume, and I was more hooked and invested in Volume 1 with only the first page of Page Just Jogging. (laughs) And you're right. Oh, you're right. Now, let's talk about Forget-Me-Not. Actually... Let's let's not talk about Forget Me Not. But uh, anybody who's listening who doesn't know who Forget Me Not is, uh, look them up. It's very very fun. Uh, it kind of like teeters on the brink of heartbreaking and hilarious. It's it's some good stuff. Um, now, I mean, let's talk about Generation X Volume One because that is far more interesting and engaging. Um, that first page of page jogging. Um, I mean, I mean that, that just, it felt like we were meeting these kids. And we were meeting these kids in a, a different way. Where now, I mean, everything's so formulaic. You know, back then, and I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and I don't want to talk like those comics were just so much better. I just feel like those comics presented themselves as comics and not as pitches for Netflix original series. Is, is, is. That was a comic book that wasn't pretending to be anything but a comic book. Not to say that Volume 2 is pretending not to be a comic book, but we were more ingrained in what comics were back in, you know, 1994. All of those characters felt like they were introduced organically. Uh, They all had a little bit of time to shine. Um, 
We talk about that right now with the current year X-Factor stuff, where each character's getting a little moment to shine here. So we're building upon every single character every single time out. You mentioned Shark Girl being background, because that's all Shark Girl is, is background. It's like, hey, we need... I mean, this is a mutant book. We need someone who is clearly a mutant for the background. Oh, okay, well, we have the uh, the brain in the jar. We got the big glob. You know, we got the, uh, you know, the chewed bubble gum with the organs inside it. And we got the shark girl. Let's uh, let's throw them in the back uh, of the uh, of these uh, big fight scenes here, which renders them to as being nothing more than wallpaper. I mean, if you did a uh, if you did a shark girl action figure, it could just be a uh, a piece of cardboard that stands in the background of your uh, of your play sets. <laughs> That's all this character is going to be. I mean, Paige jogging, and she runs into uh, she runs into Jubilee in the beginning here, and peels off her sweaty skin, just showing us what she does. Uh, grosses Jubilee out. Then then M shows up, and she's kind of a, you know catty with both of them. That felt real. That felt. And I mean, these were my uh, you know cohorts in age back then, so maybe that's why it felt a little bit more real to me. But here. It's just the current year formula. It's like, okay, well, we need a point of view character, and he's going to be the most normal. He's going to be the Bob Newhart of the book, right? And then he's just going to take in all these weird sights. He's going to see the shark girl. He's going to see the the young kid who looks like an old lady. Yeah, it's it just feels so formulaic, and uh, as such, it just doesn't feel organic. It doesn't give these kids any reason to be together. Now, Jesse continues. Jubilee's comments on trying something new with these students and then laying out a plan that they used way back in the student student squad era of New Mutants Academy X was a smack in the forehead. I can't remember if this is the way they were going, but it's more like what they did with Spider-Man and the X-Men or Avengers Academy, where they took the troubled students that could become trouble and threw them together to keep an eye on them. I just don't see Eye Boy or Nature Girl going evil, though. I just don't dig this cast. Not good. Yeah, yeah, Jubilee, <laughs> Jubilee's comments there. She's like, yeah, we're going to do something different. Exactly the same thing we've done a few times already. Oh, okay. <laughs> it just, it, it's just another way that this just doesn't feel organic. It doesn't give us any reason to care about these kids. And I can't completely blame the creative team for this because it's just the way Marvel does things now. And it's something that I talked about during the discussion of Gen X number two. It's like these books are basically told, hey, you've got, and I don't know any of this, so this is just, you know, conjecture. It's like you've been given 12 issues. Do what you can with these 12 issues. And all of the writers that get these magical 12 issues that they need to fill come up with the same exact plan. It's like, well, we're going to spend most of that 12 issues putting together our team. (laughs) And then they're going to have maybe one adventure. And then you're going to cancel the book because by the time we actually had a team, people stopped reading. And I feel like that's kind of, I hope I'm wrong, but I feel like that's kind of the path that this book is on here. We're just going to be getting to know you for almost the entire thing. Then they'll have their mission. Then they'll be canceled. It's just, it's just the way things are, unfortunately. Uh, now, Jesse continues. You did mention the Generation X Collector's preview this episode, and I had to go dig mine out. Apparently, I own three copies of this. I have a direct edition, a newsstand edition, and a reader's copy. Has there ever been any books that you own that you're surprised to see you own multiple copies of? Short answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, there are. And uh, there are copies of books that, even to this day, 
I won't even think I have them. So, like, if I see them in the wild, I'll grab them. And it's it feels like it's always the same books. It's I think I own, like, something like seven copies of Heroes Reborn The Return Number 1. Because every time I see it, I think I don't have it. I, I don't know why that issue in particular, maybe... Uh, who did the cover for that? Was that Carlos Pacheco? Maybe that just really, really jumps out at me every time I see it, but I always wind up buying it because I, I always like, oh, I don't, ha- I can't have that one. I'd remember that cover, and then I get home and it's like, oh yeah, this one again. And I'm sure there are many more. I know I did a blog post ages ago talking about um, buying books over and over again because I just didn't realize I had them. I'd have to. I mean, there there were like 2,000 posts on the blog. I couldn't tell you exactly which one it is, and it would take me all weekend to dig out which one it is. So I I won't. (laughs) Just uh, suffice it to say, I know exactly where you're coming from with that. Jesse continues, The cover to this preview is beautiful. No one draws a better chamber than Bacolo. I felt like I was 15 again looking through this and reading through articles. There was a gathering of info for the entire X-Men universe at the time, giving us a course guide for the school, a list of Xavier alumni, and a guide to 30 years of fabulous mutant fashion that could be revisited with the Hellfire Gala coming up. Yeah, the uh, preview is totally a uh, wheelhouse piece for me, uh, both in the gestalt of it as well as uh, just the ephemeraness of it. I, I absolutely adore it as well, and uh, I, I haven't looked at it in a little while, but might, we might have to dig that out to uh, go through uh, the fashion with the, uh, with the big gala coming up, see if, <laughs> see if we get anything uh, repeating or maybe with a little bit of influence. We'll, uh, we'll take a look. Uh, Jesse continues. There are so many articles from the creators about the new series, along with updates for trading cards, the animated series, and the Toy Biz figure line. It was a fun jaunt back down Massachusetts Academy Lane. If anything, to set it apart, the Volume 2 series should have been held here and not at the Central Park location. Other than the occasional visitation of two or three of the original members, there is nothing that ties this new series to the old one. I think I agree with you there. Um, I don't know what the point of the whole Central Park thing was. I think it was just a... I think the pendulum swung a little bit far because before this, weren't wasn't the mansion in limbo because of the Terrigan Mists? So, like, here we have it in Central Park where it's just like, okay, well, we were out of your face for a while. Now we're very much in your face. And uh, deal with it <laughs> was basically the uh, impression that I got from it. I think it would have been cool to uh, set Jubilee and her team up Somewhere else Just give them a little bit of personality here. Give them a reason to exist Because I mean If they're in Central Park And we're going to be focusing on Five or six students here There are like dozens of other students Why are we going to pay attention to them And not these It's eh, Just no reason to exist Now Jesse wraps up with So until we get an X book That doesn't end with someone At some point saying To me my X-Men Make mine X lapsed well, that's, uh, that's good, and that's music to my ears, because uh, that means we're going to be together for a while, because there will never be a book where someone <laughs> is not going to say to me, my X-Men. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there. I, I consider you among the top tier of Generation X fans and historians, so it's always cool to hear your thoughts on a uh, discussion of uh, the Generation X book. So thank you. Uh, Next, we got Evan also talking about Generation X V2 number 2. He says, A significant improvement over issue 1, setting up a status quo for the characters rather than just assembling them all in one place. 
I was in on Generation X from the ground floor as well. I stuck with the series until around issue 60. I remember the Monet the Vampire Slayer cover being the next one after I quit. I just, I just sort of lost steam on it after a while. The early days were notably weird, like Chamber and Skin's road trip where they met up with the Executioner and Howard the Duck. Chamber was always a favorite of mine, so visually striking and a constant reminder that powers can be more of a burden than a blessing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to remember when Monet the Vampire Slayer was. Was that during the Farber-Faber run? Okay, I'm back. I just checked. I had to dig through my long box there. Yes, that is actually the final issue of the J. Faber run before Generation X turned Counter-X under uh, Warren Ellis's plots and... Was it Brian Wood? I, I, don't, I don't want to get up again and check the long box But uh, yeah, that was an end of an era there um, I wonder what your thoughts would have been had you stuck around for just another month or two, Evan I remember that was kind of a like a 50-50 split among fans When uh, they announced that Generation X was going to go counter X uh, Some people were really, really stoked for it Other people felt like uh, Jay Faber was finally, you know, kind of Getting the puka stink off of the book here And he really had a fun direction with the books here um, It was uh, it was just a teen book It was it felt very much like, uh, I guess in retrospect It felt kind of like the New Mutants uh, Where we just had kids kind of acting like kids uh, They opened the school up to uh, human students around this time I think Emma's sister, Adrian, was a big bad during this It was, it was pretty fun stuff I remember... Thinking it was a pretty refreshing change of pace after the Puka stuff But I, I think I kind of fell in the middle Where I, I was open to the to the change um, I don't know that I was 100% excited for it But I was open to, for it Because it was Change was just in the air at Marvel at this point um, We had the you know, Gemma's Casada taken over And just things were kind of on its ear And it was a very, very exciting time to be a fan of Marvel Comics um, I really, really enjoy that time And look back on it With a great deal of fondness Despite there, you know, being some Some misfires, of course I mean, every every uh, every endeavor has uh, The possibilities of Falling short, but uh, Yeah, I wonder what would have happened if you'd stuck around If you'd uh, been hooked till the very end Of the volume, which was only Like Ten issues later <laughs> But uh, I wonder if you'd have stuck around If you'd uh, experienced the counter-exness of it But I want to thank you so much For both listening to and writing in On a Generation X-lapsed episode here Again, I always say it But uh, the Sunday specials, I don't know I don't know if people want them <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if it's just me talking to myself Or uh, if folks enjoy A little bit of a change of pace From our current year stuff So let me know. Let me know what you think. Uh, and you could do that a few different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could find uh, the blog, blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. It's also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, a series of articles taking a look at seminal moments in X-History that are still relevant to this day. Starting off with a look at the old Captain Britain stories Where we're going to meet Saturnine, Mad Jim Jaspers, the Furies Do some stuff with Otherworld It's going to be an interesting time And so far it has been There have been, I believe, seven chapters uh, there on the blog And as this show goes up There will be a compilation post collecting all seven uh, For easy receipt and digestion 
They're going to be listed under X-Men Archives, featuring Captain Britain number one. And uh, after that, we're just a couple of chapters away from the arrival of Alan Moore. So that's going to be some real fun stuff. I cannot wait to revisit these stories. I've been threatening this for a very long time. So uh, I hope folks are uh, taking a peek and hopefully enjoying what they see. And uh, maybe getting inspired to check out some of these old stories for yourselves. So... Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com is where you can find that. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook where we're getting a steady stream of new uh, new members here. So thank you all so much for joining us on this uh, on this little trip here. It's a 90s X-Men on Facebook if you're interested. Uh, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. So... That's where we're going to stop for the day. I want to thank you all so, so much for listening. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 157 of X-Lapsed, where it's, uh, well, it's the seven-month anniversary of this humble program here. Uh, September 1st of 2020 was the first episode, and here we are in April 2021. So, seven months. Uh, that and a dollar will get me a cup of coffee at McDonald's, if, uh, if McDonald's is still, still doing dollar coffee, I couldn't tell you, but, uh, it's also April Fool's Day, which, uh, you know, I had I had this really fun plan in mind to do a sort of a, I don't know, a silly little episode for today's program. But uh, as I will not shut up about, I'm in the middle of a move and all my stuff is scattered to the uh, to the corners of this town. So I was unable to locate the subject of the April Fool's episode. So uh, I hope an issue of X-Men will do because uh, I kind of feel like uh, they're pulling an April Fool's on us here with this issue. It's, uh, believe it or not, more Shi'ar stuff. They just can't help themselves. Now, let's hop into it. This is X-Men Volume 5, Number 17, March 2021, cover date, 
Empty Nest is the name of the book, written by Jonathan Hickman with pencils by Brett Booth. That's an interesting name. Hmm. Don't usually see him on Marvel all that much. Uh, inks, Adelso Corona. Colors, Sonny Go. Des- uh, letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale January 27th of 2021. Now, before we get into the issue here, let's chat about this cover for just a second. Because when I got this in my shipment, I'm guessing it was probably the second week of February I would have gotten it. Um, I saw it and I was pretty annoyed because I assumed that DCBS had accidentally slipped me a variant cover. Now, you guys know me. For the most part, I'm not a fan of variants. I would much rather own, like, the legit cover of each issue. Which, I suppose, is becoming less and less of a thing, what with DC implementing cover A and cover B in a sad attempt to fleece the uh, completionists over on their side of the country. Anyway, in seeing just how plain and generic this cover was, and if you're not, you know, holding it right in front of you now, and if you're not following along with the books, it's just Storm with speed lines and some curvy lightning bolts. It's by Lionel Yu. Very, very generic. Very, very generic. I mean, if this was a trading card, you'd look at it and go, eh, this is pretty generic. And so, I thought maybe I was either gifted this special cover, or maybe I accidentally ordered the wrong one, which I will admit has happened a time or two. Uh, DCBS's ordering process has become more and more labyrinthine with all these uh, variants and incentives and reprints. It's it could be pretty insane some months, and I mean, these are, you know, caviar problems, I guess, to complain about how I order my comic books, but it could be a pain in the ass, <laughs> and sometimes I wind up with two of the same book because I accidentally ordered a, a variant instead of the other issue of the book that came out that month. Uh, this was a huge problem back when uh, DC launched with Rebirth because so many of those books were twice monthly, so you just... uh. Yeah, it was a gamble, and you just had to read it very, very carefully and closely to make sure you were getting exactly what you wanted. So I, you know, popped online to see what the actual cover of this issue looked like, and I was uh, pretty surprised and pretty disappointed to learn that this is the actual cover. Uh, I've commented on lazy covers before, but holy smokes. I mean, does anything scream afterthought more than a cover like this? I mean, it's a fine piece of art, but for a cover on your supposed flagship book? Come on. I mean, if Marvel ain't going to treat this like it's important, why should we? Heck, you know, maybe, in fairness to uh, to the creators here, uh, maybe they just didn't want to scare us off with the Shi'ar crap that we're going to be getting inside here. It's like, ooh, you never know what's going to be in this book. And uh, when you open it, it's the Shi'ar. All right. All right. Let's, let's crack it open and get on into it. Now we open with a bunch of space stuff, generic aliens and scrolls, while a narration waxes poetic over intergalactic conflict. This is all to get to the point where we learn that the Shi'ar Majestrix-in-waiting Xandra has been kidnapped. And so Deathbird makes a uh, urgent distress call to X-Factor, circa 1989. Okay, not really, but uh, if the costuming is to be believed, uh, we are in a bygone era. 
Cyclops, Jean, and Storm answer this distress call, and as alluded to, Jean and Scott are, for some reason, in their old X-Factor togs. Storm is in her current year outfit. Deathbird informs our heroes that her paramour promised that they'd help out. And I'm guessing that's a reference to Sunspot, who had the hot pants for the Bird Lady during the Hickman New Mutants arc, so we're continuing that. Double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Gladiator, ugh. Deathbird, ugh. Oracle, ugh. Xandra, ugh. Cyclops, Jean Grey, Storm, Sunspot, Cannonball, Smasher, ugh. An hour later, the trio arrive on Chandelar and via the Krakoan Gateway. They're greeted by Smasher, who is impressed by their quick commute. Info page. Looks like uh, the transcription of a chat between Sam and Roberto. I think this is supposed to be funny, but we know how this usually goes. The heroes, uh, can we just call them the X-Men yet, are escorted to the Imperial Palace, where they're introduced to the seriously vetted members of the staff. Now, these are all the folks who were on call on the night of the abduction, and Jean is invited to psychically scan them, and so she does. It doesn't take her long to deduce who the snake in the grass is, and it's one of the servants. Storm and Cyclops blast her at the same time, and aren't sure which one's shot actually took her down. I think this is supposed to be funny as well, but, you know. The servant's disguise fades, revealing her to be a Stygian. A what now? Another generic and interchangeable Marvel alien, you say? Color me intrigued. Now, Deathbird seems to think that this all makes too much sense, and uh, she's far more interested in any of this than I am. Scene shift to the catacombs of Chandelar. Now, here we meet the Big Bad, who looks like a mix between a generic Hickman antler-headed alien and Deathlock. His name is Ur, and the gimmick here is that he's annoyed that the Stygians have been used and abused by the Shi'ar, and so kidnapping their Majestrix in waiting is how they start to even the score. Or something like that. Anywho, he makes a long speech in Xandra's direction. To which, Xandra calls Ur a monster. To which, he responds that he's only what the Shi'ar and the universe made him to be. Ah, the stakes couldn't possibly be higher, could they? Uh, the X-Men and Smasher head into the catacombs to perform the royal rescue. In perhaps the only interesting part of this entire issue, Jean Grey raises a very good point. Now, that point is that the Stygians have been treated as a lesser class than the Shi'ar, like as literal servants, cleaning up after them, washing their clothes, preparing their food, and on top of that, there's been a recent financial collapse, which only underscores uh, that uh, these poor Stygians are in eternal servitude. Now, Gene posits that this uprising was likely a long time coming. Smasher then Bedupes a button on her costume, which will apparently ensure that the Empress doesn't get killed. I gotta ask, if Smasher is this awesome, then why are we involved in the Krakoans here? I mean, aren't there some anti-mutant extremists for them to fight or something? Do, they, do we really need to be in space? Um, well, back to Ur. He allows Xandra to speak, and boy does she. It's boilerplate, you're evil sort of stuff. Just stretched out into like a hundred or so words. Ur tires of this and raises his big ol' hammer. What is it with generic Marvel aliens all carrying hammers? Isn't that like the least effective sort of weapon to bring into battle, especially like intergalactic battle? 
I do suppose as a measure of ceremony, but, you know, still very ineffective. Anyway, the heroes arrive, and they fight. Cyclops gets winged by the hammer, which, okay, maybe I underestimated it because old Scott is KO'd. Smasher rushes over to Xandra before beduping that button again. Now, beduping that button sends a call to Sam, who, uh, and she asks him to, quote, send them in. Unfortunately for her, eh, she actually gets Sunspot on the line. Comedy, in quotes, ensues. Now, he's currently on the vid phone with the money dudes, and he's exchanging some Earth money for some space currency so he can take advantage of something financial. Again, I I think this was supposed to be funny, and Hickman's, uh, you know, not. Sam finally gets on the line where he's instructed to, quote, do the thing. And so he removes a book from the bookshelf and boops a button on it. Before we know it, a dozen or so smashers bash into the catacombs. And again, I gotta ask, if Smasher is this awesome, and clearly we're meant to think that she is, why are we wasting the X-Men's time with this? I mean, outside of Jean scanning the servants, which Oracle could have done, they were completely unnecessary, and only got in the way of Smasher's overwhelming awesomeness. (sighs) Well, actually, Storm just happens to be in the right position to save the Majestrix in Waiting's life, so there's that. Uh, she also takes out Ur, which, you know... Alright, so so why do we even bother with the Smasher Legion, then? They didn't do anything. Alright, whatever, whatever. We jump ahead to later, and we're in the throne room. Xandra is sat upon her throne. We learn that she decided to make Ur a diplomat to the Stygian throne. This is supposed to be like a good faith measure, though Xandra explains that it's kind of a fate worse than death. So, uh, which is it, then? Deathbird reveals that Bobby's money moving from earlier will be used toward making life better for the Stygians. Not quite sure how, but so long as we don't have to actually read about it, I'm cool with it. Xandra then thanks Storm for the save. She says she's in Storm's debt, and Aurora is welcome to collect on it at any time. I'm guessing this will be revisited, hopefully in a single panel of a more Earth-based X-Men adventure. We close out the issue with the X-Men election poster with the ten candidates to be the final member of the first X-Men team of the Krakoan era. We've already talked about this, but as a refresher, the uh, candidates are Banshee, Polaris, Cannonball, Sunspot, Forge, Strong Guy, Boom Boom, Tempo, Marrow, and Armor. And that's where we end it. Next episode, we go back to the Boneyard. Thank goodness. But let's talk about this. Um, you, ever, you ever see like those record albums, you know, that are uh, that, that probably horribly dated me here? But uh, albums, music albums here, and they, you know, they they're all killer, no filler. What's the opposite of that? Oh yeah, th- this issue, and uh, well, this volume of X Men, unfortunately. Let me try and sidestep my general disdain for stories of this type and just talk about the main takeaway. Now, it's a multifaceted question here. It's actually several questions. Are the Shi'ar the good guys or the bad guys here? Are the Stygians bad guys or victims of circumstance here? Are the Stygians justified in attempting to declare their independence from Shi'ar rule? Huh. As mentioned during the synopsis, Jean raised some great points after her size scan. The Stygians have been long subjugated by the Shi'ar. They're fed up, 
and they see this lapse or stutter step in Shi'ar leadership as their opportunity to finally make their own way in the galaxy. Now, they might have went about it in a most extreme way, right? Which you really can't, uh, I mean, that's, it was dumb. Because let's face it, it doesn't, it doesn't really help your cause when you look evil in comparison to the bird people. But are they really the villains here? I'm not so sure that they are. So we've got the X-Men and Smasher helping a dictatorship to keep members of, for a lack of a better term, a lower class under subjugation. Not a great look for uh, for our heroes, is it? A part of me wonders if, uh, like, is this something we're supposed to be relating to our current, like, Krakoa situation here? Where it's more important to maintain order and keep everyone on the same page than to risk the status quo by giving everybody a voice. If that's the way they're going, I can kind of get behind the concept of it. Um, I don't know that we needed an entire issue to really uh, stress that point, but I suppose somebody thought we did. Um, uh, The rest of the story felt unnecessary. Uh, The X-Men weren't needed here. There's really no reason why Deathbird should have called them in. Uh, As mentioned during the synopsis, Oracle could have mind-scanned the servants, and the fact that she didn't, I mean, that's her whole thing. Why, Why wouldn't she do, like, her only talent? Very, very weird. Um, then we got the Smashers, or I mean, hell, even Gladiator, who was on the roll call page, despite not being a part of the story. They could have rescued Xander from Ur. It's it's not like dude went far. He was still on Chandelar. I mean, uh, uh, this feels like it was all an exercise in getting Storm a favor from the Shi'ar throne. That's what I'm thinking about here. Feels like there may have been a better way to get there, but... Uh, I guess at the end of the day, I'm not the one cashing Disney checks, so what do I know? Seeing Brett Booth on the art was pretty fun. It's been a while since I've seen him on a Marvel book. Uh, He is almost, you know, definitely a fella I associate more with DC Comics. I think Brett Booth did some um, X-Men Unlimited art, I want to say, back in way in the long ago. And I know he's on the first arc of X-Men Legends as well, which I feel is a great fit because his work has a lot of the, the 90s flair without a whole lot of 90s excess. You know, it's like all the good stuff and none of the uh, not-so-good stuff. Um, that said, as much as I love seeing him on art here, uh, his involvement does feed into the idea that this was a filler issue. But I guess that's just uh, the way things go with the uh, the flagship book of the line, and it looks like it probably will be until at least June or July after the Hellfire Gala. But uh, overall, this is an issue that raised a few good points. Um, I don't know if it did it as effectively as it could have, and uh, felt like we were really just uh, treading water here. We're killing time till the Hellfire Gala, and it is... Uh, I don't know that it's doing anybody any good, but that's all I got to say about X-Men number uh, 17. Whatever issue this was. That one. (laughs) That's all I got to say about it. If you agree or disagree, please feel free to let me know. Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here because we actually got a letter today. It's from our friend Evan. He's talking about Excalibur number 16. He says, I read Excalibur number 16 and Generation X Volume 2 number 3 back to back, and I was struck by the fact that Shogo has gotten smaller. Okay, that had nothing to do with the stories, but unlike many comic kiddos, he appears to have been de-aged. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I guess that might be one thing that he took after uh, his mother, his uh, adopted mother Because I remember when Jubilee was moved into Generation X She was uh, de-aged quite a bit uh, She was drawn as being like more of a young adult when she was in uh, the X-Men books, the flagship books And when you moved her over to Generation X, she was a, she was a kid so maybe maybe that's where Shogo gets it, or maybe it's just a lack of attention to detail, which is probably more the case. Uh, Evan continues, I did eventually feel like I'd missed an issue of Exc- in Excalibur because the last time I remember seeing Brian's bride, a.k.a. the magnificent mystical mutant Megan, she was hanging out on Krakoa. Not sure when she got a job in King Jamie the Weird's court, or maybe that was a detail I just missed. Well, if you missed it, my friend, so did I Because, uh, yeah, that was kind of out of nowhere I, You know, I didn't even know about their Valeria Richards daughter You know, uh, who's the smartest whatever in the room I, That was all news to me as well I guess that probably happened while I was away I think, actually, you know, I think it did happen during the Oh boy, oh boy The Excalibur anniversary issue of... Either X-Men Blue or X-Men Gold It was an annual And it was, uh, the cover was An homage to Excalibur number one Where, like, they're all kind of on the tip of that building and stuff I want to say the, uh, the super smart daughter was born there But I might be mistaken I don't, don't take my word for it (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's weird seeing her in Avalon Maybe that's something that occurred, uh, when Brian became Captain Avalon um, we're not getting all the all of the uh, details on that sort of thing, so I guess they just uh, maybe they figured that we would just put those pieces together in our in our minds here, like like those uh, you know vision exercises where they give you like parts of words and like your brain fills in the rest. Maybe that's what we're supposed to be doing here, which is very very good storytelling, I might add. Uh, Evan continues, I liked the issue because this excursion into Otherworld made more sense than any of the others. I knew why they were here and what they were trying to accomplish. It even shed some light on what Apocalypse hoped to accomplish with the team, more than I gleaned from the first 15 issues anyway. And uh, you have a point there, you have a point there, but, um, and it's funny because I hadn't thought about Excalibur number 16 in quite a while, and we recently did an episode on Excalibur number 17, which references none of it. <laughs> they're not in Otherworld. Uh, they're not with Megan anymore. They're just back on Krakoa packing up to move into the uh, lighthouse. How bizarre. Uh, yes, I mean, we're missing issues of Excalibur. I'm, I'm sure of it. Maybe Excalibur is one of the few books that still does a point one program, and we're just, like, not getting the point one issues. Maybe the point one issues are appearing on another Earth or something because... Uh, yeah, there there be holes in this story. Now, Evan wraps up with, It was nice to see Rogue taking charge. Maybe she could take a seat at the Quiet Council and give the Magic Explorers, or whatever it is Excalibur's doing, a literal seat at the table. And you know, it's funny you say that, because uh, just, uh, I think it was last episode, when I was, you know, doing some uh, thinking out loud about who might take uh, one of the Seats in the Nightcrawler, Storm, and Gene quarter of the Quiet Council I was like, eh, it couldn't be Rogue But, uh, you know, maybe maybe it could be Rogue Maybe it could be Rogue here And I think, I mean, those stories kind of just write themselves there You got Rogue, you got Nightcrawler, you got Mystique All part of the Quiet Council That could lead to some very interesting things here Especially with the, uh, with the Destiny rub So that's, uh, that's something that I, I think I might want to see But, uh 
Thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts there and for pointing out the inconsistencies in uh, in Shogo's size because, uh, yeah, yeah, Shogo got smaller as he uh, grew older here. Now, this is usually where we leave it, but since it is the first of the month, uh, the first of April, how about we look at the solicits for the book shipping in May? Here, give us a whole month to plan our shopping lists and our shopping trips and... Uh, all that jazz here. Now, these solicits come to us from Marvel Free Previews number nine. These are this is the March issue for May 2021 shipping. The covers are Heroes Reborn. I guess we're doing that again. And the back cover is Star Wars: War of the Bounty Hunters Alpha. And I don't care about any of that. Um, we open this sucker up, and the first thing we see that's X-related is uh, well, sort of tangential. It's Heroes Reborn, Magneto and the Mutant Force, number one, by Steve Orlando and Bernard Chang. Oof, when did Steve Orlando come over from D.C.? That's a fellow who never filled a word balloon with words that actual humans would ever utter. Anyway, um, I don't think this was, has anything to do with our current Krakoan-era X-Books. And it's uh, pitting this team against the Boarfest, known as the Squadron Supreme. So you'll all have to let me know if this one's relevant before I drop five bucks on it for the show. Uh, keeping it with Heroes Reborn, we got a couple more. Heroes Reborn Siege Society number one. And I only mention that one because it features Sabretooth on the cover, so I can only hope that this isn't affecting the current day stuff. Though it wouldn't surprise me if the non-ex-Marvel bullpen were unaware that Victor's currently in the hole. We got Heroes Reborn, Hyperion, and the Imperial Guard number one. Ugh, that's about the Shi'ar. And it also mentions that there's going to be a Starjammers spin-off series. <sighs> Again, you're, you're going to have to let me know if this won't be affecting our current X status quo. Let's get into our actual books here. Um, we've got X Corp number one of five. This is by Teeny Howard and Alberto Fochi. Fochi? I don't know. Uh, the blurb reads, The deals have been made. Mutant kind is safe on Krakoa. As the reign of X continues, what are the wants of the mutants who have everything? Leading the charge is the X Corporation, headed by CXO, oh, CXOs, Monet St. Croix and Warren Worthington, a duo as cutthroat and ruthless in the boardroom as they are on the battlefield. But X-Corp needs more than just its figureheads, as Monet sets out to staff her team with some of the brightest and most deviant minds in mutant kind. Warren finds himself in a tense meeting with one of Krakoa's first allies who wants to know the truth. On Angel's wings, will X-Corp crash or soar? I almost feel like this was the perfect blurb to read on April Fool's Day. Because, I mean, they gotta be pranking us with this one. Um, I don't know who's asking for this, but uh, we'll cover it. We'll cover it. Next, X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing number one by Steve Orlando again and Andrea Bracardo. Now, this would be the third of three Curse of the Man-Thing one-shots. Now, since it does involve the Krakoan era, we will be covering it on the show. It's a $5 book because of course it is. The blurb goes something like this. 
Years ago, Dr. Ted Salas was ready to give up everything to crack the SO2 serum and deliver success to his growing family. I'm guessing Steve Orlando probably wrote this blurb. Um, unbeknownst to the rest of the world, he did. Today, as cities spanning from the U.S. to Krakoa are besieged by fear-driven blazes, the man-thing must reckon with his past deeds if he hopes to emerge renewed and rescue a world on fire. But fighting from his lowest means man-thing can rise to his highest, especially with the unexpected help of the X-Men's resident sorceress Magic and her debuting team of monstrous mutants known as the Dark Riders. Please don't give us a Dark Riders book. Please? Who am I kidding? Of course they will. Um, from looking at this cover, this team of Dark Riders, and if you don't know what the Dark Riders are, they were a group of uh, goofballs who Apocalypse was rolling with around the time of the Executioner's Song. It had uh, characters like Gauntlet in it, and uh, Gauntlet is one that always stands out to me because I remember reading in Wizard Magazine that they made a Gauntlet action figure. But I could never find it. I could never see even an image of it. And I, that's actually one of the first emails I ever sent to Garib Seamus, asking if he knew of the Gauntlet action figure. And he said that, uh, you know, they just print what Marvel told them to print. So whether or not there's a Gauntlet action figure, I couldn't tell you. I don't think there was, but uh, there was a price listed for it in Wizard for a little while. Now, the team, the Dark Riders, is Magic, Mammomax. You all remember Mammomax? The one who looks like an elephant? Forearm, Shark, shark Girl, Wolf Cub, and a woman with red hair who I can't, uh, I can't pick out right now. Next up, Way of X number two. Simon Spurrier and Bob Quinn, $4. A dark force hiding within Krakoa begins to show its true form. The answers are hidden within the mindscape. Kurtz and others. One of the most dangerous mutants is reborn. There you go, short and sweet, and I'm interested. You don't got to be all flowery and talk about worlds on fire and stuff like that. Just give us what we need to know. And, I mean, there, there is a, a sweet spot for these. Because we're going to get to some that are like a line that would never entice a curious person. Or would never entice a person to be curious. So uh, I think this is a good blurb here. It's, a, it's an interesting concept, and I'm looking forward to it. New Mutants number 18. Vida Ayala and Rod Reese, $4. The New Mutant's path seems simple. Train, guide, and mentor the youth. Sure, they didn't ask for the job, but they've been figuring it out together, right? How wrong could it go? The New Mutants are about to find out. That's a disappointing blurb for one of the better X-Books Marvel's putting out right now. Why would anybody check this out with such a boilerplate blurb? Total missed opportunity because that blurb could be used for just about every issue post X of Tens. It's, they're training people, and it's going kind of sideways. I'm not convinced that they haven't used this one before. Very, very generic. Speaking of which, Cable, number 11 of 12. Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto, $4. The blurb goes something like this. Some summers seem like they'll never end, and some end too soon. Yeah, they've completely checked out on this one. I don't know why they devoted an entire page to it when they're not actually doing anything to entice anybody to pick the damn thing up. Uh, next up, Marauders number 20. Jerry Duggan, Stefano Caselli, $4. 
As the preparations for the Hellfire Gala come to a head, Aurora's eyes are pointed to the future, a future that takes her off the seas and over the horizon. Now, the cover here is pretty cool. It's got Storm looking to the horizon, and overhead we see some, you know, classic looks of our characters here. We got Kitty in her Shadowcat getup, Nightcrawler in his basic togs, and Storm with her mohawk. Thankfully, Kitty doesn't look disturbed or scared of it. And I'm guessing that this is where Storm finally takes her powder from the X-Books, which she, you know, said she was going to be doing in the issue of Marauders we covered uh, not too long ago. Not sure where she's headed, but uh, we'll more than likely be talking about it here down the line. Children of the Atom number three. Vida Ayala, Bernard Chang, $4. Origin revealed. Who are the X-Men sidekicks behind the masks? Meanwhile, a brand new alternative medicine is changing lives at school. But who's recruiting the victims? I mean, patients. Now, I really can't comment on Children of the Atom yet. I... I don't have the foggiest idea what they're all about um, We'll definitely be discussing this one I just hope the mystery of their origin Is worth the three issues weight And expenditure Because that's $13 Into this series Actually $18 if we're counting their One panel cameo in Marvel's Voices Number one Which I bought for that very uh, One panel And we'll be talking about it here uh, Not too long from now um, next up, Hellions number 11 Zeb Wells, Steven Segovia, $4 <sighs> Psylocke versus Betsy Braddock in a 30-year-long battle oh, Come on, really? <laughs> Empath's misdeeds come back to haunt him And Mr. Sinister's teeth hurt What is going on here? Now the cover has two flavors of Quanon in battle with uh, varying shades of purple in their hair uh, They're both in the Psylocke costume Is what I'm trying to say The lighter haired one, which I'd take to be Betsy Has uh, those metal clockwork orange bits on her face Like keeping her eyes open I mean I wonder if that uh, 30 year long battle Is kind of tongue in cheek Or a, a meta reference here Because it feels like we've been dealing with this for 30 years Doesn't it? Well, if anybody can make me care about yet another go-around with Quanon and Betsy. It's Zeb Wells. So, fingers crossed. Next, Wolverine number 12. Ben Percy Scott Eaton, $4. It's another Eaton issue, so maybe he's going to be a mainstay on this book now. The blurb goes something like this. A last-ditch effort will, pull, will put Wolverine and Louise within fanging distance of Dracula. And a betrayal that will tear through the X-Books. So, more vampire stuff. Next, X-Factor number 9. Leo Williams, David Baldion, $4. Best concert ever. The Morrigan needs to be destroyed. The answer lies in the Mojoverse. Looks like we're getting the band back together. Gotta say, I hate every word in that blurb. I will reserve judgment, though, because I have been enjoying that book more than I ever thought I would. But, uh, yeah. Uh, worth noting, there's actually a page dedicated to X-Factor number 8 here as well, which they neglected to include in last month's Marvel previews. So, what are you going to do? Let's look at it. X-Factor number 8. Leo Williams, David Baldion, $4. Hey, guys, wasn't expecting to see X-Factor torpedo up the Resurrection queue priority. The Boneyard's Haunted. What? Resurrecting mutant teammates. Boneyard's Haunted. Like I said, I'm enjoying this book. But 
Holy smokes, are these blurbs a cringe fest? Um, who in the hell are they trying to attract with these blurbs? I mean, people who don't spend money on comics, I'm guessing, because, oh, cringe. Um, oh boy. X Men number 20. Jonathan Hickman with Artist to be Announced. <laughs> uh oh. Uh, $4. The blurb says System Online Processing. And the cover is Nimrod. Hmm. Okay, well, I would say that I'd be looking forward to that. Unfortunately, I if I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I'd say it's probably just going to be a one-shot issue, probably featuring the boring-ass Orcus satellite goofs, because... I mean, the issue after this is going to be dedicated to the Hellfire Gala, so we can't stick around with it long. Now, just like with X-Factor, we do get a page for X-Men number 19, the, the issue before this, which was left out of last month's Marvel previews. Just how last-minute are these things? I mean, we have artists to be announced, books just being left off. I don't know. Okay, X-Men 19. Hickman and Mahmoud Azrar, $4. And it's uh, the Children of the Vault stuff here. I think we're getting two issues of that uh, in the interim here. Uh, next, X-Men Legends number 4 by the Simonsons, $4. Things go from bad to worse for X-Factor when they must save the baby, Nathan Christopher Summers, from the clutches of a deadly robot attacker. But who is really at the helm, and what will this mean for the future of the team and the Summers clan? I'm sorry, I gotta ask, who, who's asking for this? I love the Simonsons' time on X-Factor. I, you know, I want to get that out here, but... Uh, oof, why? Um, and I feel like these type of stories were the reason that Marvel started that point one initiative, you know? Actually, it's not, <laughs> it's not the reason why Marvel did that. They did that so they could put more than one book out a month. But one of the byproducts of the point one initiative, I think, is... Fitting these stories in between issues here Because we see, you know, instead of doing X-Men Legends Just point one these stories into continuity Because that's like the whole gist here, you know it, These are stories that are in continuity And uh, we do get a little uh, box here that says that this story In X-Men Legends would be slotted before X-Factor number 43 so, why not just make them X-Factor 42.1 and X-Factor 42.2? You probably sell more copies that way, I think. Oh well. Okay, here's one that we might be covering. I can't tell you much about it. It's Runaways, number 36. Rainbow Rowell and Andres Genale, $4. I can't say if this is going to tie into anything for Cohen because the blurb reads simply... There is nothing we can tell you about this issue that wouldn't spoil what is possibly the best comic of 2021. We can't even show you the cover. Is this the smartest way to promote a book that five people are even aware exists? I mean, I think when I bought those issues with Wolverine and Pixie in it, I, like, doubled the sales of this thing. I don't know. We'll wait and see. If it's something we gotta cover, we will. Now, also in this Marvel previews for the Trade Waiters and Shelf Stuffers, we've got the X-Men Inferno Prologue Omnibus. That's 824 pages for 100 bucks. It collects X-Factor issues 27 through 32 and annual number 3, Uncanny X-Men 228 to 238 plus annual 12, 
New Mutants 62 to 70 plus annual 4, Marvel Age Annual 4, and Marvel Fanfare number 40. For completionist's sake, we have Avengers by Jason Aaron, Volume 8, Enter the Phoenix. Now, this is 168 pages at 20 bucks. collects Avengers 39 through 45. And uh, if you're a Phoenix uh, fanatic or completionist, you'll probably want that. We've got Dawn of X, Volume 16, 176 pages for $17.99. This one collects Giant Size X-Men Storm Number 1, X-Force 1112, Excalibur 1112 and X-Men number 12. So kind of clearing the deck before X of 10 starts with this uh, volume. We've got the Generation X Epic Collection Volume 1 Back to School. This one's 480 pages for 40 bucks. It collects Uncanny X-Men 316, 317, 318, X-Men Volume 2, 36, 37, Generation X issues 1 through 9, Wolverine number 94. Generation X Collector's Preview and the Generation X Ashcan Edition. 40 bucks for that? Not, not too shabby. Not too shabby. And that's that. It's uh, worth noting that there are no solicits listed for Excalibur or X-Force. Though, as we found out today, that really doesn't mean anything. Marvel might just be out to lunch on those books for the moment. So, if you're planning your trips to the comic shop, on May 5th, Children of the Atom number 3, Hellions number 11, Marauders number 20, and X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing number 1. That's a $17 week. May 12th, X-Corp number 1, X-Factor number 9, X-Men number 20. That's a $13 week, unless the Hyperion Shi'ar book gets involved with our coverage, and if that's the case, it's an $18 week. May 19th, Way of X number 2 and Wolverine number 12, so... Relatively speaking, an inexpensive week here. Unless Runaways and Heroes Reborn Magneto and the Mutant Force has any bearing on our purview. In which case, you're up to another $17 week. May 26th, we've got Cable 11, New Mutants number 18, and X-Men Legends number 4. So, that's a $12 week. Unless Siege Society actually features our Sabretooth getting out of the hole. And then we're back up to $17. So, at the very least, those ex-completionists among us will be spending 50 bucks, And at most, we're looking at $69 for the month of May. And I mean, that's just the X-Books. And it's, a, it's a, you know, an old joke, but drugs might be cheaper. <laughs> These books are damn expensive. No wonder so many people are using Marvel Unlimited. I mean, I can't blame any of you, and if I were able to do digital, I'd be... Right there beside you But uh, well, that's going to do it for this month's look At the solicits for next month And uh, yeah, in a month's time We'll take a look at the June books Which will be very, very heavily Hellfire Galarific If uh, all the news is to be believed But uh, that'll do it for today's episode here If you'd like to write in and be part of the mailbag Or just say hello Please feel free to do so you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, plus X-Lapsed Origins, you can pop over to chrisisoninfinitearths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com for just the uh, X-Lap stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook where we're having some pretty fun conversations. Our little group is 90s X-Men. 
And for all your comics commentary listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. And uh, that'll do it for today's episode here. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.